You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Trouble is here. He's street smart and steel hard. He's a healer, a fixer. My name's T, baby. Wears $600 suits, drives a $10,000 car, and he carries two guns, one to stop trouble and one to make trouble. He was born in the ghetto and raised in the streets. He's been a man since he was a kid, and trouble is this man's name. If you're a friend of Mr. T's, you can count on him. How's my baby? I'm good. But if you're not, you can count yourself out. Couldn't been a dad who owns it or what color. Now you see that baby, I'll come back and see to you. You dig it? If you've got trouble, call T and leave a message. Service is prompt, efficient, and deadly. We move in on Big's business and the money comes rolling in like waves on the shore. All we gotta do is get rid of Mr. T. T is on the streets right now! One man, Chuck. He's just one man. Don't make him sound like a goddamn army. He has one edge, and that's his cool. But that's enough, baby, because he's thinking all the time. And if he wants your ass, he gets it. Trouble man is mayhem. Rub him wrong, and he'll blow up in your face before you shoot my man, Abby. I didn't. You and Jimmy got to go away for a couple of days. Where do you want to go? For what? What for? I got some trouble to have. This is Pete Cockrell. I want to talk to Chalky. This is T. Chalky's dead. Now I'm coming to get your honky ass. for trouble look out because trouble is here trouble man you jive him he'll wash you away welcome to the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me once again is ms heather drain hello hello also back in the booth with us is mr morris burstinski I'm sitting here in Projection Booth with Heather Drain and Mike White, too. It's all downhill from here, Mike. We can't match that. This week, we're looking at the 1972 film directed by Ivan Dixon and written by John D.F. Black, Trouble Man. The film stars Robert Hooks as a cool cat who goes by the name of Mr. T. That's T that rhymes with P, and this cat's great at pool. He does his business out of a billiards parlor where he holds court like the godfather on the day of his daughter's wedding. But he takes care of business, including a gig that two gangsters, Chalky and Pete, put him into. We're going to be getting into spoilers galore on this uh, discussion, so you have been warned. Morris, I'm pretty sure this was a first-time watch for you, so if I'm wrong, please correct me. Otherwise, what did you think? You're completely right. This was a first-time watch for me. Uh, I only saw the film a few weeks ago in prep for this episode. I'd long heard the Marvin Gaye soundtrack, uh, but that was it. So I did go in with reasonable expectations, knowing Ivan Dixon was behind it, because I'm a big fan of the spook who sat by the door. And for the longest time, I sort of had it 
incorrectly in my head that he was a director behind nothing but a man, but he'd only, oh, well, only acted in it. But um, I sort of had that association with him with those two films. And so, as I said, yeah, went in with high expectations and it completely lived up to it. I just found it like a really tough and intelligent crime thriller. Uh, not, I don't know whether you'd call it film noir or post-film noir, but it still used that great trope of the double cross to great effect. You know, we need you to find someone or to do something, and then the protagonist is up to his eyeballs in it after discovering he's been set up. Uh, I was just completely engrossed with how the film played out. And the thing that I really liked, and we'll probably get into this, is how it takes its time to establish Mr. T's character rather than just dropping us into the plot straight away. So I absolutely loved it on this first watch. This was a first time watch for me too. Um, I remember I saw a trailer on a comp um, a few years ago and instantly it was always like mental note. I need to see this because the Marvin Gaye soundtrack alone. Okay. That's a, that's a huge selling point, but I thought, I thought the movie looked good and it honestly, it far surpassed my expectations. Um, Morris, I think you actually kind of nailed it for you when you invoked film noir to me, it actually like, especially as the more the film goes on, it's to me, it's almost like a 1970s film noir. Like you could almost pair it with something, and this may, I don't know, people may think I'm crazy for saying this, but I actually think it'd be kind of an interesting double bill with uh, The Long Goodbye. I think that's actually a really great comparison. That'd be a terrific double feature. I know, I know. And and, uh, because there's almost sort of, almost to me like a Chandler-esque sort of element in some of the scenes and and certainly in in how the film twists. Um, Also, oh my goodness. Okay, T... He makes James Bond look like Paul Lind. He is so smooth. He is so suave. He is the man. It's just like I just oh God bless Robert Hooks because he he nailed it. I think I think this film would have been a laugh riot if they'd put a bad actor. The film definitely is almost entirely carried on his shoulders in a lot of ways, and he he brings it. But what what did you think about it, Mike? What's your history with it? I remember hearing that Trouble Man song on the. I think it was the Pimps, Players, and Private Eyes CD compilation from years and years ago. But this one wasn't that easy to find, if memory serves. It was definitely not in the uh, any of the blockbusters that I frequented when I was younger, nor was it in any of the independent video stores that I frequented. This, I think I ended up having to buy a bootleg either vhs or dvd and it was one of those dvds eventually that was being sold on uh, ebay where they looked really legitimate but they weren't legitimate things like three the hard way black belt jones gordon's war a bunch of other stuff where it had really nice packaging but there was no company uh, associated with those and when this came out i i think i owned this movie like three different times like the bootleg version the legit dvd when that came out and then the kino lorber blu-ray when that came out just a few months ago and uh i i love it Uh, i'm absolutely in love with this movie lived up to all the hype like i didn't think anything would be able to match that marvin gay song oh my god does this movie deliver and to your point yeah this guy robert hooks the movie lives and dies by him being the coolest motherfucker in the entire world. Oh my yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Your your words to my heart, man. 
it's kind of like what you're saying, Heather, as far as this opens, there's a cold open with this pool and we have this uh, kind of light skinned black lady in the pool and she's saying goodbye to T and he has to go home and change clothes. Apparently he's had a very uh, nice night with this lady, he goes home and changes outfits and he's going from one incredibly great outfit to another incredibly great outfit and he's got the car and he's got the music i mean that theme song starts up within 30 seconds of this movie starting and i've always wondered about this because this is a different version of the song than i've ever heard is he singing along to it or is this just this weird version of it where it's like marvin gay and marvin gay or marvin gay and robert robert hooks i'm not sure exactly how this is going it is marvin Gaye. Uh, what's what he's doing here is he's sort of like singing the falsetto as we normally hear but he's also singing about two or three octaves down in unison which i think just so completely works it wouldn't have worked if it had been a harmony say but i've found on some films where the version of the song that we get in the film is different to the one that comes out on the record. So like, for instance, uh, across 110th street, we don't hear the original version that, you know, the famous one that we get on the record. It's a, an up tempo, completely different cut. Admittedly, this is the same tempo, the same pace, the same arrangement, but just with a different vocal. But I'm pretty sure that at the beginning, say of shaft, it's a different vocal from the one that we get on the record. So I'm not 100% sure why they did that. But um, yeah, that, in this film, it is Marvin Gaye doing in unison, but about two or three octaves down with himself. And I think that works to great effect. I, I think that sort of the lower range sort of brings out some of the, uh, the cool, the laid backside. Uh, I mean, I guess so does the falsetto, but um, I, I think it's nice that they have that contrast. And I would have sort of liked to have had that version on the album as well. Well, luckily, I think they've released like longer two CD sets of this, so I think that version's out there somewhere. But ah, okay. but yeah, it's not the not the single that we we all know and love. And this was like the golden time for music, you know, soundtracks for black exploitation films. I mean, you you mentioned Shaft. I mean, that was a if it wasn't an Oscar winning score, which I think it was, it was definitely an Oscar nominated score. I still remember the clip of Isaac Hayes coming out like playing the organ on the Oscar stage, which was just completely crazy him and that like chain vest and everything that he, that he would like to wear i mean him and curtis mayfield doing superfly that we'll talk about next week and uh then you had james brown with uh you know the uh the, doing the songs for the fred williamson movies i mean this is just amazing soundtracks that we have to kick off the black exploitation movie movement right and then even things like willie hutch you know we talked a few months ago about the mac and that opening theme to the mac is just fantastic. That was kind of a prerequisite to have a really good black exploitation film was to have that awesome soundtrack, and this one delivers in spades. Wanting to go back to our episode that we did oh, maybe six, seven months ago 
on uh, Charlie Varick, and I think I may have mentioned that you know, people like Lalo Schifrin and uh, David Shire, in my mind, must have been influenced by the music that was going on in the black exploitation films because I always sort of felt that soundtracks like the Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 and uh, you know, moments in Charlie Varick itself – have that same sort of feel, you know, the orchestra that was brass heavy and percussion heavy. And it really sounds to me like they started a movement. So um, long live exploitation soundtracks. We need more of them. Going back to the beginning of the movie, because Mike, you mentioned the pool scene. T, like the first line we hear from him is all, yeah, because the girl's like, she's like, oh yeah, when are you going to come back or something like that? And he's just like, I'm going to have to think about that girl. And then he just leaves. That's smooth. <laughs> I love the fact that with that 30 seconds, we've already established his character. That's it. You know, he walks out of the house, he's straightening up his tie, he's in the suit and he says, yeah, we're going to have to just see about that baby and we already know right this guy he's he pisses ice cubes he's so completely cool and he gets into his cadillac and he drives home and then what does he do he wants to feel good about himself he changes into another suit he goes from one suit now that's my last night suit and we see his uh wardrobe and it's full of other suits and this guy he 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 wants to feel good about himself and he does it through his clothes and we'll get to the next scene in, in a few moments, I'm sure, about where he goes to the pool hall. But everything in that first 10 minutes before we get to Chalky and Pete coming in is just establishing his character. And I think that's such a clever move. I mean, it could have been done so clunkily. And, and to your point, Mike and Heather, about him, about um, Robert Hooks being the perfect actor for this part. I know we'll probably end up speaking a little bit about Shaft later on, but I i mean, I don't know if this is sacrilege to say, but I don't think that Richard Roundtree has the cool that Robert Hooks does. And I, I mean, Shaft is, for me, an okay film, but Trouble Man rests once again on just how cool Robert Hooks is. And I think he does a better performance than Roundtree does in Shaft. I don't take that as sacrilege because Shaft is not a movie that I necessarily go back to very often. Shaft always feels to me like it was first written, and I know it was a book series, but written as a white protagonist and then switched to a black protagonist and then they blacked it up to use a horrible phrase, but that's what it always felt like. And layering on things like the leather jacket and the Isaac Hayes score and all those kind of things just felt like it was, you know, embellishments, kind of gilding the lily as far as it went. Whereas this just feels like it's such a different film, even though it's written by the same guy, John D.F. Black, wrote both of those, and then he ended up co-producing this film. But it feels a lot more true to me, and it feels like T is a more rounded character than Shaft was. And it's interesting that, to see the parallels, like even the very beginning of this film, when he goes back to his apartment to change out of his his last suit into his new suit, we have this guy, uh, Chai, Alkali Jones, is there, and he's like, hey, man, uh, Chalky wants to see you. Almost the exact same thing happens in Shaft. One of the first scenes in Shaft after those opening credits is a guy coming in and being like, hey, Bumpy wants to see you. Now you got about a half a minute. Tell me what the hell you want with me. Please go be a basket wife to do that son of a bitch out the window. Now they can find you dead or alive. Now what's your goddamn story? Bumpy, I'm just bring you up top. Did he tell you to mess me up? 
Chucky sent me to say he wants to see you on some business, Mr. T. Go back and tell Chucky to kiss my black ass. Both times we have these private eyes, one on one coast, one on the other. Both are getting talked to by a potential Mr. Big type figure who is sending an emissary. And both times they're just like, yeah, fuck you. If he wants to see me, he knows where I'm at. And then he goes off about his business. And that's the introduction of the Chalky character, at least by name. And then we'll get him a little bit later on, Paul Winfield, who is one of my favorite actors. And it's great to see him and Ralph Waden here as two of our villains. And those two together are fantastic as well. But yeah, that same opening is there and everything, but they just really diverge paths right after that. Well, even their approach in that scene is very different. So, you know, with uh, Robert Hooks, Mr. T is so incredibly cool. He just says, well, you know, he knows where I am. Um, he can just wait. And in Shaft, he throws a guy out the window and it's, you know, violence ensues, you know. So, you know, I think Robert Hooks' way is so much cooler. In fact, you know, Trouble Man, it, I mean, obviously it has its violent moments, but it's not a film that you can sort of really cast out because of its violence. It's just that's something that they need for the story. But whereas Shaft, I think it, it's you know, maybe sold on its violence, certainly a lot more than Trouble Man is. You would have thought with a name like Trouble Man that you're in for that sort of ride. But I think it sort of rests more on its dialogue and, and on its suspense and its situations like that. One thing I noticed is you don't actually see T kill anybody until about – I would almost say like over halfway through the movie, if not even a little bit past that. And it's self-defense. So even though like he's not afraid to kind of rough up some people, he's not like a cold-blooded killer necessarily. I mean, he does what he has to do, but you know, there's not really like, I think a glorying and, and being violent. He's just, uh, you know, very early on, we see him, you know, take care of people in his community. Yeah, there's this whole thing about this kind of sub minor subplot where this uh, young mother living in a, kind of just ratty apartment building her and her baby, you know, end up bumping into the railing and falling over and they're in the hospital. And he makes sure that like the slumlord pays for their hospital and takes care of it. And what's even better is the slumlord in question is Gordon Jump. <laughs> I love Gordon Jump. And I was, I was I, I'm always, I, I know it's probably the, the same basic place we all go to, but you know, I grew up on WKRP in Cincinnati and I'm always like, Oh no. He's so mean now. <laughs> so well, at least he's not touching little kids, you know. Ew! I don't even want to talk about that. That that bothered me as a as a child. I was like, not not the nice man from from the radio station. <laughs> and of course, you mentioned uh, Ralph Way, and I didn't realize this. I watched this um, a few nights ago with uh, with Chuck, and he pointed out. He's like, "Oh my god, that's the father from the Waltons." I never watched the Waltons, so, um, but I, he is so sleazy as Pete. Holy crap. He looks like the kind of guy that makes money off of snuff films. Like he just exudes. He's so greasy. Like Paul Winfield's kind of a good, like, yin to his yang. Cause Paul, even though he's one of the bad guys, he seems like there's probably still good in him. Like you don't really get like a full on bad aura around him, but Pete's just total bad news bears. He's just, he's giving Coke, you know, to kids or something. He's just bad. I don't, <laughs> he's a great, he's so great in this though. Yeah. And the thing too, about the violence that I like is that so much of it is implied. Like he doesn't 
take out Gordon Jump, that he just pretty much is there to say, you're going to take care of this, you're going to go down there, you're going to let that mother know that all the bills are taken care of, yada yada. And then even at the beginning when he's taking care of some of those other favors, because that's one of the favors that he takes care of. And then another one is that there's a guy whose brother has uh, been put in jail and this guy needs uh, T to, to front some money for um, the bail or to give a, give a good word to the bail bondsman who I wish was Truck Turner, but it's not. But anyway, and and he says to the guy, if he runs on me, I'll feed him to the dogs. What a threat, man. You know, and you, we don't need to see him throwing the, this guy to the dogs. Well, we just know he's going to carry this thing out. If that guy runs on him, he needs to either keep on running or watch out. Just sort of coming back to the issue about the slumlord. You see, when you get to that, I want to feed him to the dogs. We're getting another piece of the puzzle as to who Mr. T is. And we sort of think, all right, he's this cool guy, but he's tough, takes no prisoners, no shit. He can play pool and he wins money. And all right, we've got a sense of who this guy is. But then there's that sense of humanity as well that he's a man for his community and he's going to go and he's going to rough up this slumlord, not because he likes to throw his right around, but because he likes to look after someone who's been done wrong by in the community. And I think that's absolutely a crucial scene that they had to have there. If they didn't have that, which, you know, as you already said, Mike, was uh, a minor subplot, but if it hadn't been there, then we wouldn't get that piece of his character, we might have sort of figured, oh, yeah, this guy's, he's cool, he's on the good side, but he's a bit of a narcissist. And I just love the fact that they threw that in there. It's all character building, all within that first 10 minutes. And I think it was such a great investment of time. I don't even know whether they would have allowed that in a film being made nowadays. I like to think that they probably would have said, no, we, we can't bore people. We got to get straight to the plot. And I think that was such a clever move. Well, I mean, it really does remind me of the beginning of The Godfather, with the whole idea of Don Corleone there on the day of his daughter's wedding and the people coming to him needing favors and the way that we get some of those people coming back later on, you know, the guy who the uh, uh, mortician and the way that we see the mortician again later on when Sonny is killed at the at the causeway. But the way that we get who the Godfather is by the way that he interacts with these other people. You know, why didn't you ever call me? Why didn't you say that I'm your friend? Those kind of things. You never come over to my house. And we here we have Mr. T holding court in Jimmy's billiards. And so we get the interaction between him and Jimmy, Bill Henderson, who a lot of people might know as being um, one of the guys from, one, I think it's a father and son uh, from Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. But to a lot of other people, he is a accomplished singer and he's got tons of albums out there. So him playing Jimmy and being kind of the man at arms for T and then also getting to understand who T is with the, the game itself, the pool game and just the way he handles himself against this other guy. What is it? Texas blood. I think the guy's name is fantastic. Love Texas blood. Watching that scene. Uh, I completely got a Godfather feel. I thought that Bill Henderson was like Robert Duvall, like his conciliary. He's whispering things into Mr. T's ear. Uh, yeah, we have uh, this person who needs a favor. We have that person who needs a favor. Okay, uh, Jimmy, can you arrange for that? Yep, we'll do T. And yeah, that that advisor, the the king on his throne. Yep, completely Godfather-like to me. 
And this is also where we do finally meet Chalky and Pete. And I love when they go out and he makes Pete ride in the back. And that is such a nice thing. And that, I mean, he's got so many great lines, but when he's just like, hey, man, you know, you sit in the back for once. <laughs> It's just so nice. Also, I love how at one point he just tells them, yeah, the two of you are fucking up a nice day. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Such a good line. <laughs> it's uh, This film has so many great lines. And just, you know, again, uh, just Hook's delivery. It's so, it's so perfect because it's just the right amount of just like testicular fortitude and cool. Those little things, like when he's uh, talking to the guy in the pool hall, and just like, "What about you, mother?" And it's just like, "Wow!" <laughs> Doesn't even have to finish it off. He just has to call him mother, and I'm just like, "Oh, that's nice. That's really nice." Nothing but a man came out in 1964 and starred Ivan Dixon. wasn't directed by him, although I spent many years you know, presuming that he had. Uh, and he plays as a guy called Duff Anderson, who is. At the start of the film, he's working on a railroad, and it's basically about you know a period in his life. He just wants some respect, and he wants to have a sense of self worth. And it's set during the whole civil rights period, and it's you know, before uh, Martin Luther King, and uh, and I just love the progression from what happens in nothing but a man where we have this character who is imperfect, but, you know, he's just looking for a little bit of respect and there's these white racists who are giving him grief and the way that he stands up to them takes some level of quiet bravery and he knows this, but he's not wanting to put up with any shit from these people. Whereas eight years later in Trouble Man, uh, the the whole landscape has shifted and Robert Hooks is thinking, you know, you're not going to get the chance to disrespect me. I'm going to, I'm going to kick your ass if you do. And I just love the fact that there's that progression from nothing but a man to not just trouble man, but to a lot of those films in under the black exploitation banner. But I think it's really an interesting progression. Yeah, I always feel a little guilty using the term black exploitation because I don't feel that there was exploitation going on. It's a little easier to say than black action movie, and black action movie doesn't necessarily encapsulate everything because there were comedies, there were so many things. So I apologize when I'm using black exploitation as just kind of a shorthand to say black centric films from the early 70s stretching into the early part of the 80s that to me is kind of you know black exploitation but yeah there were so many different things and then and yeah it was so much about independence and about power and about being able to be in control and that is mr t to a t for lack of a better phrase because he just has the wherewithal though i feel kind of bad because our, our poor main character, who is a detective, you know, I said at the beginning that he's not a detective, though he does have a detective's license, and really this is a, a detective story, because he's put onto this case by Chalky and Pete, because they tell him, hey, our uh, craps games are getting boosted by these criminals and they wear masks. We don't know if they're white guys. We don't know if they're black guys. We don't know what's going on with this stuff. We need you to come in, take a look at this stuff and help us solve this crime. And unfortunately for a lot of the movie, he is being duped by thinking that 
this is actually happening when he is being played by Chalky and Pete. Now, of course, he does find out the truth by the end of the movie, so he's not a total dolt. But it's one of those interesting parts where we know, as the audience, what's really happening and have to watch him work it out. But we know, because he is Mr. T, that he is going to be able to figure this stuff out and get revenge on all parties that really need to be taken care of. You know, I just sort of thought that maybe one plot uh, weakness was that he uh, didn't sort of suspect anything after that hit because supposedly this craps game was going to be taking place at a different venue every time and that's why he had to wait to find out where it was going to be and i'm surprised that he never asked the question hang on at least you might have a rat in the house how did these people know that there was going to be this craps game taking place at uh, this particular house and they were going to know to to bump you off or, or to to steal your takings so that just just seems like you know, i mean i don't know if it's a, a a minor thing or not i mean in an otherwise really well thought out and intelligent film but that always seemed to me i, I watched this a couple of times and it just seemed to me like yeah that's a little bit of a weakness for me, the thing that always sticks out is his relationship with Cleo. Like, if I were to say that there was one weakness to the film, it's that he has this really good relationship with this woman, Cleo, who is a, a singer. She gets an offer to go out to Chicago, wants him to go with her. She's willing to not go uh, if he doesn't go with her. She seems like she's, well, she's kind of putting him in front of her, which I'm not really appreciative of. But then he goes out and he runs around on her. We end the movie with him going on a date with another woman. It's just like, come on, man. You know, the Cleo should be your main squeeze. Either play the field or be with Cleo, one or the other. And that's the one thing that I don't like about this movie is that he's out betting all these women or, I mean, he obviously is because the beginning of the movie, he obviously had slept with the woman who's in the pool. And then later on, you know, it's just like, he's calling up different women and they're, and, you know, the one woman's like, Hey, I've got your favorite brand of whatever, you know, come on over anytime I'm here, baby. And it's like, yeah, no T you got Cleo, man. You should really stick with this woman. She's, you know, a, a great, great person to be around. I didn't necessarily have a problem with that. Cause I kind of like thinking in like the parameters of noir is typically your heroes kind of have some anti-hero elements about him. And you know, I don't know. I guess also I'm just like, oh, it's the 70s. I mean, everybody was getting trimmed, so I just, <laughs> I just assumed. <laughs> but, uh, but I know, but at the same time, I did feel bad for Cleo because, especially because, you know, she's played by Paula Kelly, um, who, and, you know, I've always liked Paula Kelly, even when, you know, she was on, I believe, the first season of Night Court. So we have a lot of really great kind of TV actors in this film. Uh, and she always, she just naturally has this kind of grace and inner strength about her. You know, you just look at her and you're like, man, that's a, that's a beautiful woman. You know, that's a, that's a good lady, you know? And so you're like, oh, come on. Like Cleo needs to put herself first too. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. I didn't, I guess that didn't bother me as much, but I totally see what you're saying. Mike, it's, it's like, come on, she's, come on. It's Polly Kelly, dude. What are you doing? Yeah. Don't two time her. Yeah. <laughs> Cleo seems, though, like a really very, very intelligent woman, and she surely knows what T's parameters are. I mean, yes, he, it does seem unfathomable that he would be running around with 
you know, such a loyal, intelligent woman who's willing to give up everything for him. But on the other hand, I think that she completely knows who he is and she's saying, all right, well, you know, I know who you are. I'll take what I can get, which is a very 70s film attitude. I mean, to your point, Heather, this is a film noir and that just seemed to be a noir parameter and it, it wouldn't work in another type of film. But yeah, it, it's wrong, but makes sense in the, in the, in the world of this film. Yeah. Also, um, I do think, cause Mike, I'm glad you brought up that little detail. Cause there's that one lady he calls for some information and, you know, I mean, how good are his powers of, I believe the phrase is dickma, <laughs> I was trying to say dickmatize, but <laughs> dick, dickmatization, would that be the word? Dickmatism? <laughs> dickmatism. <laughs> He's a uh, trained digmatist and his <laughs> his digmatism is like, seriously, that's, that is strong. That is some sway for her to be like, not only is this man fine and a great lover, I'm going to make sure I have his favorites. It's either whiskey or brandy. It's one of those, like his favorite brandy. Like that's, that, it's, I'm just saying that's very impressive. I'm so going to find an excuse to use that word in conversation today. I like that Chalky has such respect for T, like to to the point where the one guy, Abby Walsh, who is this guy that was kidnapped, he works for this other character named Big, who we'll meet in a few minutes, and he is wearing a jacket, and they've got this substitute jacket, so they're going to do this whole like switcheroo and make it seem like Big is behind this robbery of this uh, craps game. Okay, that's it's kind of convoluted, but that's at the core of this movie. And when they're showing him the substitute jacket, Chalk is just like, man, that's a double-breasted. He's going to notice the difference between that and the one that Abby Walsh is actually wearing. And I like that he knows that T can pick up on that kind of detail. So to your point, Morris, there, it is a little suspect that he doesn't immediately think what the double cross is, but they try, they, they pull it off pretty well going on here. And he, I think by the time that they take Abby Walsh's body, dump it someplace because they end up killing this poor guy, dump his body someplace. And then he gets picked up by the police and there's this quote unquote anonymous report that he was the one behind dumping this body. As soon as that happens, I'm pretty sure that his spider sense is going off going, I'm set up for something that I should not be set up for. Then it's absolutely certain when there's that hit in the pool hall later on, which I'm sure we'll get to. Oh yeah. The robbery of the actual craps game reminds me a lot of two movies. It reminds me of Detroit 9000, which we've talked about on here before. And it also reminds me of Cockfighter and the, the way that they come into that and they end up uh, robbing this whole group of guys who are there for this Cockfighter tournament, which is funny because both of these movies take place within just a few years of each other and that they all have this kind of similar vibe. And I like this whole thing, too, where they've got the guys with the masks on so that you can't tell if they're black or white. And that was the whole thing with Detroit 9000 was we don't know if this was a black hit or a white hit until they actually start to uncover the bodies and then that it was a multiracial gang that ended up hitting the, the the big charity event in Detroit 9000 was like, oh, okay, that's kind of a nice thing. But in here, it's, oh, yeah, no, it was, it's it actually an inside job. They have set it up themselves, but then they have this guy, Abby Walsh, take the fall for it and puts him onto the track of Mr. Big, who is played by Julius Harris, who is 
one of the best actors that I've ever encountered. I love every single time Julius Harris shows up in something. I absolutely love it. He's a high point for me for Superfly. He is one of the best things, and there are so many good things in the Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Every time he shows up, he's fantastic. I've got to come back to Nothing But a Man because he was in that in a small but really, really super important role in that Ivan Dixon's character, he's doing you know the wrong thing by his wife and he's sort of like trying to find his self-respect and then he goes back to uh, he finds out who his father is you know his father had deserted him a long time ago he searches out his father and it's played by um it's played by julius harris and he plays him as this a really drunk guy who's just sort of given up on life and he treats his wife who's not Ivan Dixon's mother he but he treats his, um his wife really poorly and Julius Harris just absolutely rules that role he's um you, f- you sort of feel pity on him but you sort of realize you know he's he's a guy who's just pretty much gone and thrown away his life and you sort of want him to be able to embrace his son after all these years but he says to Ivan Dixon just you know get out of my life I don't need you here I never wanted you and and yeah but he he absolutely rules that role I absolutely loved him in that so yeah nothing but a man 1964 I hate to do this like you know IMDB reading like some people like to do but just you know we're talking about like Taking Pelham one two three was seventy four. Uh, we're going to be talking about Superfly next week. That came comes out in seventy two, same year as Trouble Man. Seventy three is in Black Caesar. Seventy three is in Live and Let Die. I mean, this guy's just like pumping them out, and every single time, it's a really memorable role, and that's one of the reasons why I appreciate him. And I think he looks better bald. He has shaved his head between Superfly and this, and he, he just looks so striking as this large, bald black man that it, it really was a great look for him. And then when he comes back as Teehee and Live and Let Die, I mean, he looks fantastic in that as well. That man, he's got one of the greatest mugs and voices in 70s cinema. I, and I agree with you about when he shaved his head. That just... He looks good. He just, that's, that's a man. As soon as you see him, you're just like, you're never going to forget him. He's, he's just got that kind of great character actor gravitas. Um, and I love, like, I loved him as big here too. Cause there's, there's a really, especially like once we meet big and we see him interact with T, like, I think like him and hooks have a really good chemistry here. And the fact that you kind of see these characters have like a, you know, kind of almost like this mutual respect and we even kind of get an illusion to, um, you know, Mr. Big having a history at Jimmy's because you know, at one point he has one of his guys be like, Hey, see if my picture's still over there on the wall. And, um, and I love that. That's such a great little detail. It kind of, you know, it's small, but it kind of paints like a good picture of their history. And I love the loyalty that his guy out in his lobby has for him, where he's just, when T comes in and disarms this guy and is like, you know, I want to see Mr. Big. And the guy's just like, man, you might as well shoot me now. Cause it's just like, you know, that he's going to go after T. Like he thinks that T's there to hurt Big in some way. And he knows that if that's the case, he is going to get T. He's going to do everything in his power to get T. And when he shows up again later on at the pool hall, kind of scouting out the area before Big shows up, 
is just such a, a nice moment for me when he shows up too, because he is really super loyal. And you compare him to Chai, the guy who is kind of the the, the man at arms for uh, Chalky and Pete, and Chai is just like this junkyard dog, where it's just like you know I'm I'm going to kill this guy. He's he's you know just is so mad at T all the time and doing anything and everything, and he doesn't think about it when it comes to wanting to exact revenge on T. He's just vicious. And to compare those two guys, and then you throw Jimmy in the mix as far as being like T's guy, it's amazing to see all three of those characters and compare them, and that we have the level of acting in this is just wonderful. I mean, every single person in here gives a great performance. There's nobody that has a throwaway performance, even the guy who plays the boxer that T goes to to see. Like, I thought for sure, oh, this is probably a real boxer in real life, and, you know, they just kind of threw this guy a role or whatever. But no, he's got a real intelligence behind his eyes and the way that he's thinking about, you know, where Abby Walsh has been at and that he is motivated by money just like T is, that whole thing. Like, well, I can remember for $30 or whatever. <laughs> just the way that he's just like, yeah, lay some bread on me and I'll help you out. And then that he comes back later on in the movie when he calls up to the gym and checks with this guy. It was just like, oh, it's so nice to see this character come back. He could have been just a throwaway character, but that he has that return value is really super nice. Coming back to what you said about him doing what he wants for, for the money or, or helping Mr. T out for the money. But he's not presented as being a sleaze bag either. It's just I'm looking after myself. But yep, sure, you're you're a figure of respect, T, and I know that you'll help me out with the cash if I can help you out with the information. It's once again I, coming to your point about all the acting is great in this film, but I think all the characterization in this film is fantastic. And, you know, he could have quite easily been uh, a caricature. Yeah, man, I'll help you out if uh, you just pass me on some, uh, some bread, but it's pretty much more than willing to help you out, but I need some compensation. And T respects that because to your point, Mike, that's what he's about as well. And there's a, a great scene later on that emphasizes that where, he, he finally gets hold of, uh, of Chalky and demands to get his money. He wants no more, but certainly no less than what he'd promised him. So there is this motivation around money, but there's also this level of honesty and integrity that we just don't get to see in Chalky and Pete. And also coming back to this point about there's the level of respect that uh, Mr. T has for Big and for Big's henchmen. You know, it's like, hey, man, I've got no argument with you. I've got no beef with you. And that's him recognizing, okay, there's the chalky and peep level of treachery and nastiness, and he never has anything nice to say to them. You know, I mean, after all, they're fucking up a nice day. But when Big's henchman, I don't remember if we ever get his name or not, but he comes in and I think inherently he knows that he's just, a working guy who's looking after his boss and he knows, hey man, I got no beef with you. Hey, have a Coke. Um, and let's, you know, let's, let's just talk. So, uh, yeah, I, I just love it. It is. The film is clever as much for its characterization as it is for how the plot entails itself. Cause it could have just been another bog standard crime film, but it's the depth of the characters and how clever and how honest they are. That's what really makes this film, I think, a keeper. 
kind of a cool comparison is when you compare big to say chalky and Pete, because it's like, you, you know, these are kind of like the two different sides of people that have a pretty good stronghold in the area as far as, you know, getting money and maybe having, yeah, obviously being tied to some of the games and, but yeah, you know, big, obviously very smart, seems to reward loyalty above all else. And cause that's the thing they mentioned when Abby dies is like, there's no way Abby would double cross him. He was loyal and he was valued by big because he was so loyal and he knew he could trust him. Whereas Chalky and Pete, they're obviously, you know, greed and treachery of kind of like rules the day. I mean, cause even like with shy, like, you know, if there had been a scene in the film where shy betrays them to get him, you know, get himself over some situation, you wouldn't be surprised, you know, spoiler alert when Mr. Big ends up getting shot. And he dies. Like, you're legit bombed. You're like, oh, not him. Like, I like him. (laughs) And it means we're not going to get Julius Harris anymore in the movie. And that's, you know, that's always a sad thing. But you, but I I love that. You know, a film's good when you actually, when it can pull off that kind of emotional pull. Getting that kind of emotion, that, that takes some skill. I love this whole thing of him being motivated by money and you brought up the whole thing like I want my 10,000 plus 500 for him having to fuck up one of his suits. <laughs> so you know that this guy's wearing some pretty expensive threads if he's getting $500 for one of his suits. But that whole um he kind of reminds me in that way of Walker from Point Blank where it's just like I want my money. You know, I don't care about the revenge, any of that kind of stuff though. I think T does have a little bit of that for him. But he's just like, I just want my bread. That's it. You know, give me the money that you owe me. I'll get the money from you, Chalky, and then I'll go extract it from Pete. So just don't give me 30000 I just want the 10000 plus the 500 for my suit. And I love that negotiation that he has with those guys earlier where they're trying to shortchange him. Chalky thinks you can do it another way. Can you? Maybe. If the money's right. How much you asking, T? One night's tick. We'll give you one grand. You'll give me shit. I pick up a grand sitting around Jimmy's making a couple of phone calls. You want your trouble fixed, it's going to cost you. All right, Tim. One night's take, 2500 Ten big ones. You don't take no $2,000 in one night, man. Look, man, I'm not going to hassle about bread. You know my price. I'll be at Jimmy's around 7 o'clock. Make up your mind, you call me there. Now get out. Two of you are fucking up a nice day. And you know, that's the thing is like, do you guys kind of wonder if like with his skills at pool, do you get the feeling he kind of that's how he built himself up as a younger person? That's what it seems like. I know he must have spent a lot of time at Jimmy's and I bet that's where that friendship started at. Yeah, well, and to the point where he, he his office is at Jimmy's. I'm just waiting for the uh, the Netflix prequel series, you know, Mr. T and Jimmy, the early years. We get to see how Jimmy got that tin leg. I haven't brought up the cops in this, and this does really fit into that model that we've talked before on on this show many times whenever we talk about detectives. Are detectives in line with the cops, or are they at odds with the cops? And this is definitely one of those where he's at odds with the cops. But the way that he plays the cops is pretty fantastic. I mean, we've got the white captain, who I think maybe 
uh, what's his name? Bill Withers or Smithers? I think he might give one of the lesser performance in this, William Smithers. Um, he reminds me a lot. I, I was looking for this short. I really wanted to show it to you guys. There was a, a, a film by David Morley, uh, who made a black exploitation short film called Shank. And Shank is a former detective and it's very much a black exploitation parody. He's a former detective and there's the white captain in that who is pretty much completely clueless through a lot of it. And Smithers really kind of reminded me of that character. He's not clueless in this. He's not a comic figure, but he's definitely an adversary. And so at one point we get T being at odds now with Chalky and Pete, potentially at odds with with Big's men, and then definitely at odds with the cops as well. So no one is on his side other than Cleo and uh, Bill Henderson, uh, Jimmy. So that's it. He's a man alone just trying to solve this whole thing after Big gets it at that pool hall. You sort of get the impression, if that's the case, that that's why he's so cool and unflappable as he is, because he's probably been in situations before where everyone's been against him. And he's learnt to rely completely on himself. So his what might seem like you know an act of selfishness or narcissism and not being loyal to Cleo, even though she's completely deserving of his loyalty, is just part of his character that he's learnt not to rely too much on anyone. He understands her worth. Uh, he understands that she's a wonderful person, and he's you know prepared to get her out of the city to make sure that, you know, she doesn't come in harm's way and the same for Jimmy, but ostensibly because he's probably been in situations before where he can't rely on what the cops are against him and the bad guys are against him. You, You just get the feeling this is not the first time he's been down this road. And we're given like all these great details that really show just how intelligent and savvy he is. Cause you know, he has the private, Detective license, which helps him basically legally carry a gun. At one point, he mentions to the captain that he's, you know, he know exactly knows his rights because he's studied, he's studied all these law books and like he knows his shit. And yeah, I just, and I love that too because it's like, you know, I guess compared to like, you know, when we, I mentioned James Bond earlier, you know, James Bond as a character almost seems at times almost like supernaturally. <laughs> kind of just like a caricature and an archetype and you know with T it's like he's smooth he's badass he's he's you know he's good he's damn good but there's also like stuff like that where it's like yeah but this isn't like a caricature like he's this is just a really intelligent man who's made his way in in this world he looks out for people and he gets trim and has brandy I mean come on who could not love that (laughs) There's one skill that he has, which we've not mentioned yet, and that's his ability to get a great parking spot. The beginning of the film, he gets to park right out in front of his apartment building. He parks right outside the office building of the the slumlord. He gets a parking spot right out of the front of Jimmy's pool hall. He gets a parking spot right out of the front of the police station, out of the office building where Chalky has his office. And, you know, he would have gotten a prime spot outside of Pete's office, but he wanted the element of surprise. But he would have gotten it if he wanted it. Um, Oh, and also outside the craps game. So everywhere that he goes, he just has that sixth sense. I'm going to be able to get a parking spot. And I, I mean, probably that's a trope in every crime film 
of the 70s or every TV show of the 70s, but is only watching this film that I thought, oh my goodness, this is what's happening. I've got to make a note about this. So now every time I watch a crime film, I'm going to be watching out for the parking spots. Well, I think Ivan Dixon had a three-hour cut of this where he just is circling the block over and over again. I'm I'm very sad to hear that because I have the Kino Lorber Blu-ray, which is which is exquisite, but uh, that deleted footage is not on the release. I, we we were we were robbed of the parking trying to get a parking spot in Los Angeles footage. <laughs> and Morris, I'm going to look for that now forevermore. Anytime I watch an action movie now, I'm like, hey, that's a good parking spot. Yeah, the realistic ones. You have a meter made coming out. It's like ah, oh, T's got a ticket. They even did that in Superfly TNT. The, the the priest parks his car at one point, and then he goes behind him to the car that's behind him. He takes the ticket off of that car and then puts that ticket on his car, like, leave my car the fuck alone. <laughs> it's the details. It's the details like that that just make, make it just all the more rich. Well, the detail of T having a Coca-Cola machine in his pool hall, in Jimmy's pool hall, and then keeping his gun there... That was enough for me to turn off the commentary on the Kino Lorber disc when Howard Berger was talking about how the Coca-Cola machine represents the American dream and all this kind of stuff. I was just like, from somebody who runs the projection booth saying that you're stretching really means you're stretching. I know I got into it once on Facebook with Berger because he was trying to tell me that Brian De Palma's, uh, is a Mission to Mars that he did? That, that was one of Brian De Palma's best films and really the, what? um, yes, th- that was like the epitome of, of De Palma. And I was just like, really? No, no it's not. <laughs> oh my God. No. Like, why would, why say that? Why would you? Why would you say such things? Well, that was the thing. I was just like, you need to write a paper and come back to me with your paper so I can read it, because otherwise I'm going to laugh you out of this conversation. That's a that's a hot take. <laughs> Damn. That's, I'm like, if somebody said that to me, I'd be like, have you, how much diploma have you seen? I'd be like, have you seen Sisters? Have you seen Fam of the Paradise? Have you seen... Have you Ghost seen High Mom, you know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you can trace a lot of stuff back to High Mom more than you can that movie. No shit. That's right. That, I, I would expect the answer to be like, well, I saw the Black Dahlia. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> like, oh, dude. That's... That and Redacted. Those are the, the key <sighs> De Palma films. Yeah. God, that, oh, that just broke my brain a little bit. <laughs> that's like saying, uh, I think the Rolling Stones' best album is Steel Wheels. Oh my god, Coke Machines. Um, I, on a, on a different point about that Coke Machine, uh, and this is a total aside, does anybody else miss those? Like, cause I remember, like, when I was a little girl, uh, where my mother worked, they had one of those, and I was always so riveted by the, you know, the glass bottles and probably the Freon I was inhaling. <laughs> I might open it, but but those uh, it's a different time. But yeah, it's no, it's not, it's not a symbol. It's just a Coke machine. <laughs> Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. I miss the taste of Coca Cola. I haven't had a Coca Cola since 1997, so I kind of oh, miss wow. it. Good for you. I don't drink soda that much either. I'll have like maybe one one a month max. Now coffee, on the other hand, I, I live off of it. But <laughs> I was a total Coke addict. Oh, I was in college. I truly hope that you don't get someone sampling that little statement that you made and taking it out of context that you're a coke addict. If only I had a Reverend Scott to do that kind of stuff to me, you know? (laughs) 
And everybody says that. You're like, I, are you kidding? Do you know how much money is in podcasting? We wish oh, we could afford Coke. Hell yes. <laughs> Give us that Scarface money. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Every podcaster has a huge table just full of cocaine. See, I'm, I'm sad because just because I'm a guest co-host, I only got like the little pile. I oh, okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> that hell's bells money. That'll start rolling in any time now. Hell yeah. I got to tell Kat, this is what we've been missing out on, girl. We need the Coke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she and Sam already know about that. Sam's such a trust fund baby. <laughs> Speaking of cocaine or not, you have this scene where these cops come into Jimmy's. Automatically, you know, they're probably not real cops because they're carrying like rifles and stuff, <laughs> which uh, which doesn't seem regulation. But um but what's uh, and they end up shooting. This is, I believe, the scene where they end up shooting Mr. Big. Um, and unfortunately, it was Julie's Harris, Mr. Big, and not the band. But uh, <laughs> that was a bit wicked of me. I'm sorry. But uh, but one of the cops, you can barely tell watching the movie, um, is Harrison Page. And I have to make note of this because I love Harrison Page. And of course, he was uh, Emerson and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and he was also the TV show Sledgehammer, which was awesome. So. Just kudos to Harrison Page, because he's great. Emerson found that something as precious as love brings with it a demand for greater understanding. But yeah, I mean, I love that this movie has so much intrigue. I mean, we even get, like, fake cops. And, and that doesn't really come back up, but it's just, it's kind of a cool kind of a touch. Also, just more proof of how dirty uh, Chalky and Pete play. Yeah, you know, I mentioned earlier the Cockfighter and Detroit 9000, this whole idea of the robbery earlier and the use of – I can't remember if they use fake cops in this or not, but I was also reminded a little bit of uh, Uptown Saturday Night as far as the robbery and trying to retrieve this lottery ticket and stuff. And then in this scene – um, I was reminded of another film that would come so many years later with L.A. Confidential and the way that T has to then change the scene and shoot the gun from Big's hand and then basically say that it was him and Big who were trying to shoot it out at the pool hall. Um, and I can tell that it, he doesn't like lying about that, that he was the one that killed Big, that it, you know, it was in reality somebody else. But, you know, he has to cover his ass in that way. And I appreciate that he can think on his feet so quickly. And again, our, our captain of the police is not an idiot. He pretty much sniffs that out right away. But then that gives us this whole idea of T's gun being locked up in evidence and the way that T goes in there to retrieve the gun and put it back later on is really nice. This whole fake thing of, uh, Wadznitsky that, <laughs> that he's investigating this guy. I don't know how he knows this guy exists, but it's really nice that he's able to use that as a bluff and get into the evidence room and easily steal his own gun to go out and take care of Chalky and Pete with it. I love the fact that the Wozniakski, I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing that, my apologies, but that comes up twice. Like, he's able to use it twice. It's that good. <laughs> and the fact that he has, like, a good rapport with some of the other cops. Like, again, kind of a smart thing with this film. It would have been easy just to have it be us versus them kind of thing. Um, you know, with T being an enemy of, you know, the whole police force. And it's like, no, when those fir- the first batch of cops we see arrive, like, he clearly knows one of them on a name basis. And the guy's, like, cool to him. Uh, the guy's partner's super uptight, but, you know, the main cop is cool. And then, like, with this guy that is in charge of the evidence, you know, area, like, you know, they're chatting, the guy's real nice. Um, T obviously knows enough about him to know that he's a chatty Cathy, 
and uses that to his advantage. So, um, so I just, I don't know. It's a, it's an, again, just another really great detail of this movie. Yeah. I totally forgot about that first cop when he's like, if T does, if T says he doesn't have a gun, he doesn't have a gun. I was just like, Oh, that's really nice that this guy treats him with respect. Yeah, no, I loved, I loved that little detail. So was that the scene in the uh, in the gymnasium? Yeah, once again, it's uh, the the uh, um, the the white guy who comes across all antagonistic, and um, uh, the other guy was it uh, Melendez um, who, who uh, says no, no, I trust him, I know him. So there, yeah, there is that dichotomy. There, there are the the cops who don't like him and those who say yeah no no we've got this relationship and you know t does have enough of a reputation across the board uh, to inspire you know both respect or fear and and that guy the white guy who comes to arrest him obviously is you know a, a week into the job i think i'd like to that we don't get the n-word in this movie until towards the end of that and when Pete uses that against T the way that Chalky just jumps all over his ass, which is fantastic. That whole idea, him saying like, that nigger is going to feed you that word backwards, Hulky. And if he doesn't, I will. Fuck yeah, man. That's awesome. I love when that tension now is between Chalky and Pete. Their whole empire is is about to collapse because they fucked over T and they know it. And they know they're going to have to go into hiding now because T has finally figured it out and he is going to take these two motherfuckers down. I wanted Chalky to whoop up on Pete so bad in that scene. I'm like, you racist, piece of shit. You should get your ass kicked. And it should be Paul Winfield doing it because he's awesome. <laughs> but then, we, but it all works out in the end because, of course, we we have the film's climax, which is excellent. And um, and of course, I love it that Pete lives in like some sleazy looking yuppie condominium build apartment building that looks like you know. I don't know. It's like, ugh. It just, everything about him is sleazy. Where he lives like sleazy, it's perfect. You, you can't wait for him to get his just desserts. His polyester shirts. Ugh. Everything is flammable in that apartment. Everything. The furniture is flammable because it's probably made from synthetics. <laughs> his hair is probably synthetic. It's just, that actually would have been a great alternate ending if... if <laughs> If if T just threw like a lit cigarette at his suit, <laughs> it just comes up in flames. <laughs> yeah, there's so many great lines towards the end of this movie, especially like um, when he kills Chalky. T kills Chalky, and then the phone rings, and he picks it up, and he's just like, "This is T. Chalky's dead. Now I'm coming for your honky ass." I'm just like, "Fuck yeah! <laughs> this is great." <laughs> It's oh my god! That's this is a film where you do like actually like well you, you'll like pump your fist in the air yes because I did that I clapped I scared my cat it was so good I was like yes yes oh it just it delivers so T takes out Chalky takes out Chalky's men that's where we get Chai getting it so it's funny because we have this whole like coming together of chalky and pete you know they're supposed to be living in basically like racial harmony like they explained earlier in the movie like we both run different parts of the city if chalky has an off night then pete kicks into the into the pot and then if pete has an off night then chalky kicks into the pot you know we are the example of the two races really working together in mutual 
respect and 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 getting along together in crime and then as soon as things start to get rocky man they just turn tail on each other and then we just have only black guys at chalky's place and only the white guys over at pete's place and then pete's got his guy so i guess chai was kind of more loyal to chalky and we've got this guy frank who's got this kind of like white man's afro kind of thing going on and when t comes up and he gets this guy i love the way that he uses him as a human shield and just is basically like standing behind him the whole time just having him go into rooms first and when he makes him knock on pete's door because he knows bullets are going to come flying and after he kills him he's just like you killed Frank, Pete, but I'm all right. I'm coming for your ass. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> Another fist pumping moment. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm, I'm all right, baby. <laughs> it's like, yes, you are. Like, <laughs> and yeah, Frank totally looked like Walter Egan, but like if he was missing some chromosomes, like you do not miss Frank. You're like, yeah, that's it's probably for the best. I'm sure that Howard Berger probably had a lot to say about that mirrored room that Pete's in and the way that people are fragmented in the mirrors and all this kind of stuff. I don't care, but that's a freaking awesome image, like that poster image of Trouble Man where he's reflected in those mirrors and that same thing is used on the novelization. And uh, the novelization of this movie is fantastic. The same, the screenwriter wrote the novelization and it's done in this kind of like almost a jazz style, like between every few phrases, there are ellipses. So it's just like one thought and then ellipsis and then another thought or like a word. And it's just this real kind of like loose style that he's got. And he even mentions, you'd be happy about this, Morris. He mentions that the parking spot in front of Jimmy's is always open for him. I knew I was onto something. I knew it. He does call that out. They know that that's his spot, and he's always got those kids there waiting to watch his car and stuff. And, you know, he's just like, you know, young blood's going to watch my car. They're going to earn a dollar. That's the way that they're going to do it. So he's just all in on that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it's a great novelization. It's a little tough to find, but I would highly recommend if people are really into this movie. But since it is John D.F. Black who wrote the novelization, it really follows the screenplay. Like, I was reading it to see if there's, like, if there are those three hours of of driving around the block scenes, but uh, it seems to be pretty much a one-to-one kind of thing. After he ends up dispatching Pete and Chalky, goes back to the evidence locker. Now there's this uh, pretty younger African-American officer who's working there, and or she might be a cadet, and he has her distract the sergeant so that he can, you know, put the gun back in there. And that line where the captain is just like, you know, hey, we heard that there's some trouble, there's this gang violence, yada, yada. Him using... Vladimir Wadzinski's name at the end of this, like I was looking up Vladimir Wadzinski or whatever. It's totally like that end line from Shaft where it's just like, you know, your case busted wide, o- wide open. Looks like you're going to have to close it yourself. Shitty. <laughs> <laughs> So he's got the beats of Shaft, but I think it's just the middle is so much better than what we had in Shaft. But Mr. T is so much cooler than John Shaft because, you know, T just walks away into the morning with the the pretty police officer and Shaft is walking away laughing his ass off. And, you know, if you're a cool guy, you don't go away laughing. You just, yep, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. That's right. 
T's about to get himself some, and who knows what Shaft was about to do. <laughs> We're going to take a break and play a couple of interviews. The first interview is with Mr. T himself, Robert Hooks. The second interview is with the screenwriter and producer, John D.F. Black, who... Unfortunately, as I was looking up his wife Mary's name, because I end up talking with Mary more than I talk with Mr. Black, unfortunately, he passed away back in November, late November of last year. It was not a good year for this movie as far as him passing away in November. Joel Freeman, the other producer of this film, passed away in January of 2018, but I'm really glad that I was able to talk to Mr. Black before he passed on. Um, so I just want to say, if if Mary ends up listening to this, that I appreciate her patience and all of her help and uh, wish her my deepest condolences, because as you will hear in this interview, John D.F. Black did a ton of great stuff, and I, I feel bad that his passing went kind of unnoticed because he really has contributed a lot to a lot of things. You know, even being a Star Trek fan, you, I would have thought that I would heard more about his passing. But so let's go ahead, play those interviews, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh, us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Oh, that was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Tune in to Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Faith Fox. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. Hi. I'm Steven Seagal. That's right, Steven Seagal. And for the past 40 years, in between barbecue and oxen and roast and boil for my insatiable appetite, I never miss an episode of Dr. Action and the Kick-Ass Kid commentaries. Isn't that right, Johnny? Hi, I'm Dr. Action. Hi, and I'm the Kick-Ass Kid. When I'm not watching action films, I'm usually polishing my gun while looking at a bat. And when I'm not watching action films, I'm normally outside with a harpoon killing puppies. But usually, you can find us both watching 80s, 90s action films. You could follow us on Twitter, Dr. Action Kick-Ass. You can find us on our main page, which is dractionkickass.blogspot.com. You can also find us on iTunes and TalkShoe. Yes, every week we do a commentary on an 80s and 90s action classic, and where we can, we also provide the film so that you can watch along with it. This podcast explodes. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. 
You like classic movies? How about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. I want to talk about Trouble Man. I want to talk about you. I want to know how you got interested in acting and how you made the journey to become an actor. When I was growing up, I, I was nine years old, actually, and I'm from a family of five. There are five of us. My older sister, Bernice, uh, was a recreational counselor in the summer at Francis Junior High School in Washington, D.C., where we all went. And in the summer, she would put on programs and all. And I was just busy running the streets with my buddies and doing all kinds of crazy stuff, stuff that you do in the foggy bottom when you're nine years old. And my sister wanted me to do this play. She was doing a play for the summer. This was her assignment for the summer. And she was doing Pirates of Penzance. And I looked at her and I said, you must be out of your mind. I'm not getting out of stage. My buddies will laugh me off the stage. That's nothing that I want to do. It's, uh, you know, on a stage. That's sissy stuff, isn't it? Anyway, she said, no, you're going to do this play. So anyway, it's a long story. It's all in my book, which hasn't been published yet. But she was the one that convinced me that I had to do this play for the summer. And uh, and I played the lead in uh, Pirates of Penzance. And when I walked out on that stage, and I was afraid that my friends, all my buddies, would laugh me off the stage. But actually, they sat down front and were really and truly supportive. And then at the end of the play, we all took our bows, and I heard that applause, and I thought, that's nice, I like that. And that was what catapulted my whole thinking about what I wanted to do, because I, I felt great uh, doing it, and, and especially afterwards, uh, with the applause and people, and the, and the place was packed. It was all neighborhood people, and I knew most of them, but they really were surprised that Bobby Dean could take care of business on stage. So, and I'm nine, remind you. And so, uh, that's, that was the beginning. I, I, and then from that point on, when I went back to school that September, I joined the drama club and, uh, in, 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 in elementary school at, at Stevens Elementary School, which is a, a landmark now, a classic. A uh, school where Jimmy Carter's uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, daughter went to, and it's still there. It's a landmark. But anyway, uh, that was the school I was going to when I started uh, when I started acting, and then I just joined the drama club in that school, and in Francis Junior High School after that, and in Armstrong High School after that, and then when I moved to Philadelphia, West Philadelphia High School, I was always a member of the drama club. That was how it started. What was it like when you moved out to Hollywood and tried your hand at, at the big time out there? When I moved out to Hollywood, physically moved with my family, with my wife and my new son, Robert Jr., uh, I had already been coming out here uh, doing film and television, and mostly television, but features as well. Uh, I had already been coming out from east, from the East Coast, coming out to the West Coast, and I kind of fell in love with the West Coast. It had everything here. I mean, you know, it was 
the climate, you know, we had the beach, we had the mountains, we had the desert, we had everything out here. And it was a great place. And I thought, well, it was 1977 when I made the move after Robert Jr. was born. When Robert Jr. was born in 77, I thought, well, I can't, I, I won't even think about raising another child on the East Coast with the weather and the craziness that goes on. And I decided to move uh, move to Los Angeles. So when you're doing NYPD, you're actually shooting all that stuff in NYPD or in New York. Oh, yeah. New NYPD was my first uh, big, real big uh, exposure to, you know, to the to the public uh, nationally. Uh, that, that was, uh, we started that, I believe in 66 and we did that for two or three seasons and, but that was all done in New York and it was all done actually, you know, unlike any of the other series that were done, including NYPD blue, but all of the series, the police series that were done were done basically, you know, people came up with ideas for stories about you know, the police detectives in New York, but our, our scripts were all based on actual stories out of the New York, out of the NYPD files. So all of our stories came out of the NYPD, uh, uh, police files. It was early on for television. I was the first black dramatic star in television. I mean, Cosby was there, but his, his show, uh, I Spy was a comedy actually. And so, uh, I was, uh, and we were we were friends, and we still are. Unfortunately, he's gone through these changes. But that was the first. Uh, I, I was the first dramatic star in a police series in television, and that was uh, sixty six, I believe, sixty six, seven, and eight, or six, seven, eight, and nine, something like that. But uh, yeah, that was all done in New York on the streets of New York. And the wonderful part about doing a series in New York City is you know for for actors and directors and producers is that it's it's broadway it's broadway and off broadway so you get all of these wonderful actors you know al pacino and people like that bob duvall and just actors that went on to do great things in film they were all in nypd because they were doing plays and it was new york so that well, that's what was really great about doing the series uh, NYPD in New York is that we got the best actors to do our our show. You were working for some amazing talents at the beginning of your career, working with Sidney LeMay, working with Otto Preminger. What was that like for you? Well, it was fantastic for me and for me personally, and of course for my career. That Sidney Lumet, incidentally, but no, it was great. It, it, it was great. It was funny. I was doing. The Otto Preminger film that I did, uh, called Hurry Sundown, and there were six, six of us above the title, and he made it clear to me, you, all you guys are gonna be above the title, so you gotta say yes. What well, I was doing a play uh, on Broadway, and at, at, I don't know if you know in New York, but Sardi's is a very, very famous eatery and a theater place, and you know, it's where all of the, you know, they have the great characters on the wall, caricatures on the wall of Sardi's, and it was just the, it was the place. It was the place where if you opened a play on Broadway, the whole cast and crew and production crew would go to Sardi's, and that's where we would read the reviews for the play that we just did. And so the night we opened, and I can't remember the play. What was the play? 
Anyway, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, Where's Daddy? One of them. I've done seven Broadway plays, so I get confused. But anyway, we were in Sardis waiting for the reviews, and the phone rings. Now, when you're in Sardis, you're sitting at the table. I remember as a young actor being invited to Sardis by people, you know, and I, you know, I would see them bring the phone over to the table and shit. I thought, whoa, shit, that's really nice, you know. So anyway, we're sitting there waiting for the reviews. We're sitting there waiting for the reviews after the play. It was really a wonderful piece of uh, play. Uh, I think it was Tennessee Williams, uh, but I'm not sure. But anyway, yeah, it was Tennessee Williams. It was uh, it was the Tallulah Bankhead Tab Hunter play that I did. But anyway, so I'm sitting there. We're all sitting there waiting for the reviews. But the phone rings. And Vincent Sardi, I believe he's gone now, but he was the son of Sardi's name. He was the the host of the fabulous Erie Sardis. So anyway... So he walks over to the table with the phone and he get out of here. He says, a telephone call for you. And I thought, okay, somebody's playing jokes on me, right? So I pick up the phone. I said, hello, is Robert, Robert Hooks? I said, yes. He says, this is Otto Preminger. I saw the play tonight. You have a wonderful, brilliant performance. I'm doing a movie and I want to talk to you in the morning at my office. And I thought, Okay, who the fuck is this, right? Come on, <laughs> give me a break. I just did, I just worked my ass off. We opened the place, so don't do this, whoever this is. He says, it's Otto Preminger. <laughs> well, it was Otto Preminger. And he invited me to his office the next morning up on Fifth Avenue at Paramount. And I went into this big, beautiful office with a big desk, empty as all hell. But then, you know, he didn't have to worry about having anything on his desk because he had all these minions, right? So anyway, so I sit down and he tells me about this new movie that he's doing. And he's already casted all of the roles. And he's been looking for a black actor to play opposite Diane Carroll. And I thought, whoa, what the, what the hell? Am I dreaming? <laughs> right? And, uh, and so he said, I want you to play the love interest of Diane Carroll in this movie, Hurry Sundown. And, you know, we've got uh, Michael Caine and Jane Fonda and Faye Dunaway and, and John Philip Law and Madeline Sherwood and Buzz, Bar Buzz Meredith and, and Bea Richards. He went on and on and on with all these great actors. And I think I'm still dreaming, right? So, of course, you know, I call my agents and we made the deal. And we went to Louisiana to shoot this movie with the great Otto Preminger. I mean, the great, the stories about Otto, Otto are classic stories, most of them true. But I had a great, great experience working with Otto. We didn't have such a great experience shooting the movie in Louisiana in Ku Klux Klan uh, land. I mean, the parish that we were shooting most of the movie was Ku Klux Klan. There were Ku Klux Klan members in the movie. We were on location at one point in the film, and we had to travel in like caravans because people were shooting at us, literally shooting at us from the roads as we traveled through. We were doing this play, this movie, which would have an integrated cast, and you know it was about you know farmers and in Louisiana, but they did not, they weren't used to seeing black people 
uh, uh, associating uh, and and you know with white uh, with white people at all. So we had big problems uh, locally uh, with the Ku Klux Klan. But my experience with Otto was a great experience. I did have it out with him at one point. And he respected me for standing up to him, and so I never had a problem with him. And after that, when we finished the film, he would always invite me to his townhouse to see movies and things like that. It was a great experience doing Hurry Sundown. The Sidney Lumet movie was the same thing. I mean, we shot it actually, ironically. We shot, uh, it was called Last of the Mobile Hotshots, a Tennessee Williams uh, uh, movie, and that title was a movie title, The Play. The book and the play was a different type. It was called Blood Kin. Blood Kin was the original title for for the Sidney Lumet movie, and uh, they changed the title. And it was about a, a family in the South, a black uh, and white brother, you know, from another mother, right? From the same mother, actually, a white mother. But it was during the flood, and the father... Uh, uh, went up, you know, they had to go up on the roof when, when the floods came, you went up on the roof because that's the only way you could save yourself. And while they're on the roof, that while they're on the roof, I was conceived <laughs> with a black father and a white mother, right? And it was already, already a, a white son. And so then there was the two, two sons, one black, one white. And James Coburn played that role. And we shot it. And stayed at the same hotel, actually, uh, that we stayed at in, uh, in her, when we shot Harry Sundown. And this was, was called The Last of the Mobile Hot Shots. Lynn Redgrave and um, James Coburn and I starred in this particular movie. This, this was Sidney Lumet. And uh, we, we, we shot it in the same area, and we went through the same bullshit, racist craziness with the Ku Klux Klan doing those two movies. But anyway, those are two big movies in my career. It was actually at the beginning of my career, although I had done Broadway plays and off-Broadway plays before that. You know, you get that national and international attention and, and, and with when you do movies with Otto Preminger and Sidney Lumet. So that was uh, an advantage for me, and it was a great time in my life and my career. Now, with Trouble Man, was that your first leading role? But I, I meant as far as like you are the main character. You there is nobody equal to you in Trouble Man. You are. I mean, hell, the name of the movie is basically you. No, uh, uh, but yes, Trouble Man. I was the lead. Uh, it was a movie that we did in uh, in 1971. Actually, it was released in 72. But I was Mr. Key, Trouble Man, and he wasn't a pimp. He wasn't any of those other things that the black exploitation movie. T was a private eye. He was a, 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 a community a fix-it man. He was uh, interested in all of the families in the community that called on him. So it wasn't like he was one of. He was. It wasn't those stereotypical kind of roles. When Ivan Dixon approached me uh, to do the movie. He reminded me, this is different. This is a different kind of black star movie. This guy is, he, he, was, the, he was the godfather. He, he was, if you saw the film, uh, when, he go, when he goes into, when we first see him in his pool hall, which was his office and his business, 
he would go in and he would set up whatever they had, uh, whoever wanted to challenge him on the on the on the table. He would he would uh, set up, and and there would be a line of people on his left. He'd be sitting in his chair, and there there was a line of people that could only they had to stand behind like a yellow line on the floor. They had to stand behind that line, and when T was ready. To, to talk to them about whatever their problem was in the community or whatever, family or whatever, then he would call them and they would walk over to T and talk about the problems and ask him if he could help and he would understand what, and he would always help them. He would listen to them and he would always help them. So he was more than the other kind of stereotypical pimps and hustlers and that kind of stuff. What was it like working with Ivan Dixon? It was one of the great, it was, first of all, it was the first black director I had ever worked with in film. Uh, and it was new to him, too, because he had, uh, he had just started directing film. He understood, well, first of all, he was a friend. I knew him. I knew him well. We were both actors. As a matter of fact, the movie that Ivan did, uh, the first movie that he did that was, that kind of gave him his international, it was called Nothing But a Man. And Nothing But a Man, when they were casting Nothing But a Man, it was down to two actors that they were going to use as the lead with Abby Lincoln and places, people like that in the movie. And it was Ivan and I, and I. And Ivan got it, and I was happy for Ivan, but he got the role. But we were friends, his family are friends, his wife, his kids, all that. We were all friends, been friends for ages. Working with him as a director, because Ivan was an actor, and see, actors, when they turn directors, understand more about, especially black actors uh, and black directors, understand more about the actor playing the role that they're trying to interpret or, 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 or you know, uh, uh, bring to the fore. Uh, Ivan and I, you know, Ivan and I would just go off. We had our meeting and talked about the character and talked about what the script was all about. But after every single shot that we did in that movie, Ivan and I talked about what we did and what we might have done differently, but we didn't have time to reshoot it because we were losing the light or whatever, whatever, you know, when you shoot movies, you have to, you know, you're in a, you're on a location, you better finish because you can't come back the next day because it's already, you know, you're already off to another scene. But anyway, we would talk and that was what was rare about working with Ivan Dixon. He wanted to talk to the lead, to me, uh, Mr. T, he wanted to talk about the shot that we just did, regardless of what the shot was. It could be a, a small shot. It could be, it could be, you know, whatever. He wanted to talk about it and make sure that I was happy with what we just did. And if he was happy, what was it? And when we had to reshoot it up, we did. But that's what was, that would, that's what was extraordinary about working with Ivan Dixon. He, wanted to know what the actor that's playing the lead role felt about what we just shot. Is this something that you want to redo? I mean, and directors just don't do that. You know, they go, okay, Frank, rap, uh, that's a rap, you know, uh, not a rap, but that's a print. And they move on. You can say, wait a minute, hold it. I, I think we need to do another take on this and then you know forget that that ain't gonna happen right but ivan was different that way 
So it was a pleasure working with Ivan Dixon as a director. And I was so surprised that he really knew his shit. He really knew what he was doing. He knew the angles. He knew knew the lenses that he wanted to, needless to say. I mean, if you've got a director directing a feature film, he's got to know this. But Ivan was special in that I watched him work with the DPs and the lighting guys. And, the, and you know, I mean, it was just amazing to, to work with him. My son, Kevin, does the same kind of thing because Kevin was an actor. And that, that it's just, uh, to me, if, if an actor turns director, I want to work with that guy. The chemistry between you and Ralph Way and Paul Winfield is fantastic. And I'm curious what it was like in working with those two guys. It's always nice when you when you're friends with the people, regardless of the kind of character you're playing. I mean, when the camera starts rolling and the director yells action, then I'll cut Ralph's throat or I'll shoot him. I shot him a lot in this movie too. But off camera, it was a they were friends. I mean, Paul and I, and and Ralph and I, and all the other people, Julius Harris, all of the other people, and Paula as well. We were friends. Now that helps. When you're friends. Now you can be, I've been in movies and I walk on the set and I don't know anybody. This is early on. I don't know anybody. I said, well, how the hell am I going to make this work? I don't know this actor. You know, I'm looking at him and, and you know, I'm going to have to do this scene. And if you don't know the actor that you're working with, it's a disadvantage. I'm sorry. If you know the person, you can talk about what you're about to do. You can talk about where this, where the confrontation starts, where it ends. You can talk about what this character believes, a backstory. You can do all of that stuff with people that you actually know and want to do the same kind of thing. They don't make movies like that anymore. They do. Don't get me wrong. They do. But it's always the big superstar that's doing the movie. And if he knows another actor that's playing a role, that's fine. For the most part, they don't. So they go on and they're, they're starring in the movie. So if you don't do something right, then his nose or his or her nose is going to get pushed out of shape. And then you've got a confrontation between two artists on a set. And I've had that experience where I said, Hey, hold, hold on for a second. Let's talk about this because I know you're the star of this series you know, and I'm just a guest star, but there's got to be a mutual respect that happens. If you, if your producers hire me to come in and do this role, I'm talking basically about television and stars of television, because that was the problem that I had as an actor working on these series. And I've done a lot of them, a lot of them. And some of the stars are just wonderful people, but most of them, because they just wear the the, the 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 star kind of label too thick, you know, and they think they believe that my my aunt Elizabeth used to say to me, she said, "Don't believe your shit don't stink because it stinks just like everybody else." <laughs> and this is what you want to say, hey man, I put my pants on the same way. Don't do this. I know you're the star, but let's talk about this scene. Let's talk about this. This scene, this confrontation that you and I have, let's talk about that as two artists, not as you, the star, me, the feature player or the guest star, because I know I'm gone and next week you got a whole other cast and another director. 
So, but anyway, uh, I never had that trouble with eye addiction. So we'll go back to that. Were you really good at pool before you started working on that movie, or did you have to shoot those scenes a lot? Oh, no, I was good. I wasn't as good as Texas Slim or whatever the hell his name was. But, you know, we're talking movie. We're talking movies here. So I win all the games. <laughs> this kid that was playing, this kid that was challenging me, this guy did some shit on the pool table that was so unfriggin' believable. Ivan told me about this before he, before we, before the day that we shot the stuff in his, his scenes in the pool hall. He said, this guy is unfucking believable, Bobby. He said, this guy will fucking blow you away. And, and, and sure enough, I don't even know. I don't know what happened to him, but boy, he could shoot. Now, you know, I won the game only because I was Mr. T, but this kid, but I was good. I was good. I was a good pool player. I thought I was a very good pool player until I played Nichelle Nichols. She kicked the shit out of me. I could not be. I couldn't win. I couldn't win a game. She is a brilliant pool shooter. I don't know. She still shoots, and I haven't seen her talk to her in years. But boy, she 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 showed me one thing that they can talk about women shooting pool all they want. Nichelle Nichols could shoot pool like anybody that like Minnesota fats. I mean, that's how good she was. So I, I was good. I, 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 I have a good game, but uh, you know, you've got to play that game all the time. Nichelle's got a pool table in her rec room downstairs. So they play every day all the time. I never had a pool table, you know, only time I play is when I go to the pool hall, but no, man, but I, I could play. What are the circumstances of Nichelle Nichols whipping you in pool? I, I have to know. Well, we, we, you know, we, we were friends. We've been friends long before we did uh, Star Trek together. Uh, we were friends before that. And uh, we did, uh, she did another series, and I played her husband or her boyfriend or something. But anyway, she would invite you know, me to dinner, and I'd go over, and there was a pool table. And we would play pool. And I thought I was good. And when she first said, I said, oh, yeah, I'll play your shit. You know, come on. How much how much we playing for? You know, right? She said, no, you don't want to bet me. She said, you don't want to bet me. I said, get out of here. No, I'm serious. What are we going to play for? I'm being very macho. I went over to her house, and I had a lovely dinner. She cooked it. And I had a lovely dinner, and a kid was there. I can't remember her kid's name. But anyway, young kid, like my kid, like Kevin, as young as Kevin was at the time. They're all now 60 years old almost. But anyway, uh, and so she, we ate, and then she says, come on, let's go down, let's play. And I think, come on, girl, I'm going to kick her ass, and I'm, I'm going to try to be nice. She broke on me, and we're on the break. Four balls went in the fire. I said, whoa, what what's going on? I break, but I've never broke with, you know, I, maybe a ball will sink over here. She, she hit, she hit the, 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 the pack and, and four balls went in the pocket. I said, oh shit, you got a problem here. So I played her. We played a long time too, but I immediately gave her, I mean, she was better than I was. And I mean, much better than I was. And to the point where I was just learning from her. That was my experience, my first time playing pool with Nichelle Nichols. <laughs> I learned a lot about the game of pool. <laughs> As actors, we were on the same level. But I tell you, we were shooting pool, she was way up there. But we were friends. I mean, and then 
when I did uh, uh, Star Trek, she was, you know, I did three. I did the movie Star Trek three, and, you know, they had already done two movies, and this was the third movie, and and she, it was a big, big success, and she was a big star, and she was surprised that I even got the role of the uh, of uh, Commander Morrow, uh, and uh, and and I I had a wonderful time working on that show, and uh, with uh, with Shat, and also uh, um, um, Leonard Nimoy directed that particular movie, and it was great, and it was you know, and and she and I of course continued to be friends, and we still are. You've done over a hundred things, not even counting your stage work. Of all the stuff that you've done, what are some of your favorite things? What are the ones that you really remember fondly as far as not even like what the end product was, but just making it and having a good time doing that? Well, I've enjoyed most of the things that I've done, most of them. But there's, if I had to choose um, a favorite role, well, two favorite roles, but one certainly – the one favorite role of mine was they're both on the stage because I'm a stage actor and, you know, movies came later. Uh, well, actually not later, but I started doing movies early on my stage, uh, you know, when I was on Broadway. But, uh, the blacks, Jean Genet's, Jean Genet's brilliant, brilliant, uh, play called The Blacks. Uh, and it was done in New York. It was a big, big hit. In New York, it was ran for it was longest running play off Broadway. It was ran so long that the actors, including myself, that came in to do these starring roles, would go would do the roles and go away and do a movie and come back to the play, which is rare in in in, in any on on or off Broadway. But back then. Uh, it was a black play. Most of the black, I replaced James Earl Jones in this role of village. The, the character is called village, Diodato's village in this play. And it was such a brilliant, brilliant play. And the role was so dynamic that I loved it. And, and, and I couldn't wait to finish whatever movie or television I was doing to get back to playing the blacks off Broadway in a, 145 seat house. That's how brilliant the play was. But the role of village in the blacks would probably be the best character that I liked the most. It was extraordinary. It was avant-garde. It was all that, but it was just a brilliant, brilliant play and a gorgeous role. And James Earl Jones originated it. And I came, I saw him do the role and I thought, damn, I'd love to do that because I wouldn't do what Jimmy just did. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't pound my chest. That's not an area where you pound your chest. And, and I'm sitting there watching James Earl Jones brilliantly do this role. But I'm now putting myself in the role, saying, nah, not not a good decision, James. I'm sorry. But it worked for him. And when I did the role, I changed it around. So the so Village in the Black Suit. Now, there was another role in a play that I really and truly just loved. It was the role of Blue Haven in Lonnie Elder III's Ceremonies in Dark Old Men. That's a play that we did at the Negro Ensemble Company which, of course, you know is my company and one of my companies that I co-founded and, and all that stuff. But anyway, Blue Haven in that play, that role, 
So the two characters I really, and I've done a lot of great characters, don't get me wrong, but those two, you asked me to, you know, I'll choose those two roles over all the other wonderful roles that I've done. You talked about writing an autobiography. Where are you at with that? Well, my autobiography is written already. I just can't, it hasn't been published. Uh, There are three big publishing houses that wanted to do my story, which incidentally is called more than myself at the crossroads that the main title is more than myself uh, um, uh, at the crossroads a memoir a cultural memoir at the crossroads of 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 a culture politics and the civil rights movement and it's done it's been done but i don't want my life story i don't want my my autobiography my memoir to be about some sexual tryst that I had with Jane Fonda and Faye Dunaway shooting Mary Sundown or, you know, like a people. That's what they want. They want, oh, Robert Hooks, the actor, is doing a, has done his book, his, uh, his uh, autobiography. And they read it and they thought, well, you know, it would be great to have a little more of this and a little more of that. That's not my story. My story is not about the sex that I've had with Hollywood, whatever, or whatever. It's not about that. My story, my life story is about the things that I have done for other artists, for other communities. What I've brought to the, the, the black theater movement of the sixties, uh, when we started, uh, the Negro Ensemble Company, and then I went, uh, I, well, I, even before the Negro Ensemble Company, I had a theater company of young, young uh, uh, teenage uh, drama students off the streets of New York that grew into the Negro Ensemble Company and then my Washington, D.C. company, the D.C. Black Repertory Company. So the, the, my life is not about my acting career at all. Yes, it's a part of it. But what's important for me to get through to the person that reads my story is that it's more than myself. It's about the community. It's about other artists. It's about creating opportunity, using your leverage, which is something that d- doesn't happen today. If I, it would be great to see if Denzel and Samuel and Will Smith and all these people would give something back to the community. It doesn't happen. It's not happening. Uh, uh, but when I was coming up, when I was doing my thing, I used my celebrity. I used my leverage to open doors for other people. That's what I do. I pride myself in that. So if the publishers don't understand that, then I'll wait for the right publisher. It may happen after I'm gone. It may happen after I'm gone. I don't care. doesn't matter. My story is my story, and it's not about tits and ass and whatever, you know, the, the, the titillation of the reader. No, it's not about that. My, my, my history is all in the history books. What I've done is all in the history books, and it's what I've done for other people. So that, that, that's my whole thing, Mike. Going back real quick to Trouble Man, I'm curious, was there ever talk of uh, doing a sequel to that? No, not, not – no. well, actually, there, there, there was talk, uh, I don't know, maybe a couple of decades ago. Somebody talked about it, but I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure – they're, they're, they're doing uh, now today. They're doing uh, Superfly uh, sequels and things. No, uh, you know it, it's no. I, I never, I never got approached. I did hear talk, 
And this was when Ivan was still alive. I think somebody approached him to do a sequel, but because it did very well, the movie did very well. I, you know, but no, the the answer is no. I I I, uh, I did it. It was I think a classic, and uh, and it's funny when I when I I was doing when I did Trouble Man, I had just moved to Washington D.C my hometown, incidentally. I had moved back to Washington after being in New York and Philadelphia and out here. I moved back to Washington, D.C. to build a third theater company. I had already done it twice in New York. But Martin Luther King was assassinated. And I was doing a play on Broadway, and I got a telephone call after Martin was killed from the mayor uh, actually, from not from the mayor. He turned out to be the mayor later, but he was like the city commissioner or something like that. His uh, first black mayor, Walter Washington, was his name. And he said, uh, so a friend of mine, Petey Green, who was like uh, the griot uh, in my neighborhood, and they did a movie on, on his life, too, uh, um, that Don Cheadle did. Not a very good movie, but um, Petey Green called me late at night. And uh, he said, this was the night they shot Martin, the day they shot Martin. The, the city was burning down, Mike. The city was burning, not only Washington, D.C., but a hundred other cities across the country were on fire. Yes, they were rioting and there was a looting, too, but they shot Martin. They murdered Martin and people just took to the streets, right? Well, the the, the 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 commissioner called me and he said, no, Petey called me, he said, I want you to talk to the commissioner. So I said, okay, fine. He said, Mr. Hooks, we need for you to come back to Washington. They're burning your town to the ground and we can't get them off the streets. They're on the streets and they're, you know, and the next day, now I got, I don't know what I was doing either. I was doing uh, Hallelujah Baby, the musical, and I just got my producers to, I think Billy D. Williams was my understudy. I said, you know, I got to go to D.C. The next day I was on the train to Washington. And I walked the streets of Washington, D.C. And talking people, a lot of them I knew were my friends that I grew up with. Out in the streets. And I did as much as I could. We walked the streets. My brother and I and A. Murphy, who great, one of the great restaurateurs and one of the great people in my life, we walked the streets of Washington trying to get people to get off the streets, stop burning down your own businesses. It doesn't make sense, right? So anyway, when I was on the train going, now I did that for the whole day, the day after Martin was shot, and it worked. We got a lot of people just to go, just stop rioting, Right. I'm on the train going back to New York and I'm saying, I got to do something. I had just done the Negro Ensemble Company in New York, which was so successful, bringing communities, all communities, white, black, brown, Asian, together in one place to see black artists doing their thing. And it just was a coalition of wonderful community things. I was like, I can do this in Washington, D.C., my hometown. I got to do it. So I came back. I got off the train. I called Douglas Turner Ward and Jerry Crone and my producers. And I said, I got to go back to D.C. And uh, I'm going to build a theater company in D.C. And what happens when you build a theater company in the community? It's 
got to be in the community. It can't be downtown. It has to be in the community. When you do that, you bring a kind of a serious coalition together of all kinds of people, right? It was a healing, and I knew that was going to happen. So I went back, and I built the D.C. Black Repertory Company. And while I was doing that, I, I wish I had just finished, as a matter of fact, shooting Trouble Man. And when Trouble Man was going to be released, I used it as a benefit to help fund the DC Black Repertory Company. That's what I was doing when I did Trouble Man. And it all worked very nicely. And I went back and I started the company and the company was successful. So I have three big successful theater companies that are in the history books that I've created because I use my leverage and my celebrity the right way. I don't have anything against people that don't want to. That's their business. You know, I I could have made, (laughs) I remember when I was going to, when I was moving back to Washington, D.C., the kids in my group theater workshop and in the D.C., in the Negro Ensemble Company threw me a party. This is when I was going, coming back to Washington to build the D.C. Black Rat. They threw me a party. And I was coming back to D.C. just to to do this for the community, right? My manager at the time, wonderful guy, he's gone now. He came to the party uh, at my Lincoln Center apartment that they threw for me, whatever, whatever. And he walked over to me. He said, you got to be out of your fucking mind. He said, Dude, D. Williams is making all the money in Hollywood. Man, would you go back to D.C. to the ghetto and do some theater company in the ghetto? I said, look, I'm happy for Billy, you know. I'm happy, but my vision, my my whole thing is not about that. You know, I, I I was still making movies, I was still doing stuff, but I was able to go back to the community and build something, a cultural institution in a city that was dying, a city that needed healing, and it worked. So there, that's what I was doing when I did trouble. So now back to trouble, man which was really quite fun. <laughs> I just wanted to paint that picture because that's what was happening when I I had just finished Trouble Man and it was in, it hadn't even opened yet. This was in early 72 or whenever, it's not early, but later, 72. I got 20th Century Fox to let me do the premiere of the movie in Washington, D.C. as a benefit for my new company. And they were happy to do it. It was good for them, too, publicity-wise. And so that, that was the Trouble Man opening was the benefit for my company, the D.C. Black Repertory Company. And uh, it worked nicely. I had uh, you know some of the actors come in. And I had the studio men, too, Paula Kelly, I think Paul Winfield, uh, Julius Harris, Bill Henderson, the singer, was wonderful in the film. Uh, he came down and, and to the opening. And this was, a, and they were all, oh man, this is really great. You started this company, man. We got Trouble Man to be the. <laughs> so that was the opening of Trouble Man that I used as a benefit to help uh, my company, my new company in Washington. Mr. Hooks, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Well, it's been my pleasure, and I hope that uh, you, got, uh, you got what you want. And it's been it's been a, a great career. It's also been fun for the most part. And I got my kids 
my kids are now filmmakers or my, you know, I have grandkids that are producing in the industry and my three of my sons are filmmakers. And, you know, so it's been a great ride for me, a great ride. So Lewis, thank you. Uh, thank you, my buddy. And, uh, uh, if you want to send me, uh, after you've edited this thing, send it on off to me and let me take a peek. Okay, Mike. Bye, buddy. Take care. want to know how you came to be a writer. What got you interested in writing? Yeah, I, I wrote for the LA Times. I did some some ads, ads for the LA Times. John was writing uh, display ads for the LA Times, uh, going in and pitching them and so forth. And he uh, went into a place that wanted to discuss that with one of the people that sold them. And it was, I believe the man's name was Boris Petrov, and he said he wanted he wanted to advertise for a writer. John said, you don't need to pay for an ad, I'm a writer. And what happened with that, it came out on screen as The Unearthly, and John's career had begun. Now, we'll give the phone back to John, okay? With the unearthly, though, you ended up taking a uh, another credit, if memory serves. You went by a different name because it was crappy. Yeah, you didn't like the movie. I didn't like the movie. Well, how did you move from that into writing for television? It just happened. Here's my Mary. She's going to talk to you a minute. John got an agent, as people do when they're lucky, and the agent's strength was with television. Uh, John uh, wrote a television movie uh, just before the series was, well, the series was on and just before a writer's strike. And then he was out of work for about a year and a half because that's how long the writer's strike took. But then when the strike was over, one of the series at Warner Brothers needed a script and needed it fast. And John adapted it for those characters and he from there went did many many Surfside Six right you're back on uh, I did Surfside Six and oh, uh, oh Lord I can't remember oh it's fine I remember you worked on like the Lawman and the Untouchables and the Fugitive you worked on so many things for so many years um, I remember you worked on Mr Novak for a long time yeah. Yep, I did. That was what you got the Writers Award for. I got the Writers Guild Award for that, for for Mr. Novak. Was it that one, or was it Laredo that helped lead you into Star Trek? No, nothing. Okay, I thought I remembered no. you and Harlan Ellison winning an award at the same time, and that's when Gene Roddenberry approached you guys. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you say yeah, you won it for yeah. That's right. You won you, that night. You won it for Novak. I won it for Novak that year, that night. 
uh, the, uh, now I'm lost. I I'm sorry. I, I'm a little I'm a little mind boggled. You've got a headache. I've got a headache, and I having I'm having a terrible time remembering. Would it work if I called you on a different day, or is Mary okay talking with me? I mean, I want to make this as easy for Mary's you as possible. Mary's okay talking with you. Okay. Here she is. Hi. I was usually around for all of this, so, I mean, at, at the studios and so forth. So, I'll do my best. Okay. All right. No worries. No worries. You know, obviously, I can't talk to John or to you without asking about Star Trek, since that is such an enduring legacy, and especially the, the Naked Time that he worked on was you know, one of the more popular episodes of the show over all these years. From what I understand, Gene Roddenberry, though, was not necessarily the easiest person to work with. That depends on how you mean easy. Uh, he had a Wallace Berry kind of charm. And he, it was, it was very, you could be really furious with him, but he'd give you that lazy smile and you'd find you were smiling back, even though you really wanted to throw something at him. And, uh, he, he was compulsive about rewriting. Uh, he, he, he had a promise from John that he, that John would be able to negotiate any changes with the original writers and he wouldn't live up to it. Uh, but John thought that maybe he would be exempt from that because he was one of the producers and he was where he was. And then one Monday morning, before John got there, pages were handed to me with from Dorothy Fontana with a sad face on her and saying, Gina has rewritten John, I'm sorry, and he wants all of the secretaries to participate in the writing, in the, re in the copying. Got, John got in there about an hour later, and I had already had gone across the hall to Dorothy and said, I really can't. I'm going to be sick. That's the kind of thing that was so difficult about him. That's why Harlan uh, was – I don't think Harlan ever really forgave him for that, and I guess John never did either. Uh, it became one of those it, – it was like a chronic pain that you just get used to. But he – no, and among – at least some of the writers, they just never wanted to have anything to do with Gene as long as they lived. Mary, what was your role on the show? I was his secretary. That's what I was paid as. But I was really his assistant because John really isn't big on critique, and uh, I'm okay with it. So I'd read the scripts, and I'd make some notes for John. And one time he actually went into Gene's office uh, with my notes in hand because he hadn't had time, and Gene snatched them up and handed them to the writer, which was pretty upsetting. And since I was something of a smart aleck, smart ass, really, uh, the, they were pretty jokey. But fortunately, the writer was a good sport and didn't take it as an offense. But that was the kind of thing that happened there. If memory serves, John's only credited to one episode of Star Trek, the original series, but his name shows up on a couple things when I, when I'm doing my research, including one that Dorothy Fontana ended up eventually getting the credit for, which was journey to Babel. Do you know anything about that? Don't, uh, I don't remember. I don't think he worked on that one at all. Uh, he worked on, I would off the top of my head, I'd say the first eight to 13 episodes, uh, but wasn't credited because the, the writer's guild, uh, wasn't, enthusiastic about producers taking credit unless they'd done a complete overhaul of something. 
Uh, so he just was happily doing, contributing what he could. He did a lot on Mud's Women, uh, contributed some very meaningful stuff. Uh, and on others, uh, he'd, he'd kind of sharpen it up. But uh, I don't, I don't remember Babel, whatever it is, Babel. I don't remember his, his doing anything on that one. Kind of fast forwarding a little bit, I'm curious as far as the timeline, if you remember, which came first, Thief or Shaft? Because they're both coming out in 1971. I'm pretty sure, I'm, I'm 90% certain that Shaft came first, because I can remember the following year, uh, John was up for an award for Thief, and uh, that was in the summer, summer or late summer. I'm really pretty certain that, it, that Shaft came out first. It was done first. Well, what was that experience like with Shaft? I mean, it is such a, a groundbreaking movie, and it just really, I mean, it opened the doors for so many things to happen after that. Uh, well, what happened was that John was given the final draft that Ernest Tideman had written and the original novel. What he found, and, the, and the, of course the studio wanted something done by somebody who was used to the screenplay form. And John realized that Tideman had lost the quality that was in the book, the nature of Shaft and the atmosphere and the sharpness of, of the Shaft character. And that was what he brought to it. People don't like to be rewritten and they don't like anybody else getting a credit and so forth. Uh, so that was, it wasn't nasty. It was just one of those little battles that go on. And John, unfortunately, uh, in regard to the credit, uh, he was still in his young idealistic phase. And he told the Writers Guild that would determine the final sequence of credits. He, d he wasn't going to send them any statement because, as he told me when he hung up the phone, I trust the Writers Guild's judgment. And I had a terrible feeling at that moment. So <laughs> he did not get a, he really didn't get a credit cons cons um, consistent with what it was that he brought to the script. But, but hey, right? <laughs> was that one of his first adaptations? Because I'm trying to think if he had done much adapting before that. I don't think he had. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to go through my head, and I think the only thing you could call adapting would be uh, when a series was already in place and the characters were set up, I think the I think the first adaptation he did after Shaft was "Do Not Fold, Spindle, or Mutilate" from uh, a, well, sort of a crime novel that Doris Miles Disney wrote, and uh, he did a major change in that with that one. I haven't read uh, Disney's book. What was the big change that he made? Well, the big change was this. The novel had started with a wonderful character, an in-your-face older lady, and killed her off within, I think it was about 15, 18 pages of the novel. And then in came a lead character in the form of a young, attractive woman who uh, connects with some kind of structure, with the person who killed the very interesting older lady. When John realized that, he knew that he had to take the older lady, make her the lead, take her character as it was, um, 
someone who was, as I said, an in-your-face, have-a-good-time, Washington, D.C. kind of person. Unfortunately, I have relatives in the Washington, D.C. area, so I could throw in some research for him of what socialization is there and things. Uh, and he rewrote, in, a set, in effect, the whole thing. Uh, kept some of the scenes where the guy commits another murder, but again, new dialogue and the structure, of course, had to be changed a lot. Uh, he brought in three other older women who hung out together, and the character that he fleshed out and devised was played by Helen Hayes. So you can imagine it was a interesting character. Well, it's a, it's a fantastic movie. I just watched it the other day for the first time, and it really captivated me. Isn't it fun? It is. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it was it was such a thrill. Those those four women: Mildred Natwick, Syl- Sylvia Sidney, Myrna Loy, Helen Hayes. That thing about great ladies of American theater and cinema—they really were on and off screen. Well, and Vince Edwards just plays such a great creep. I couldn't get over it. Oh yes. Well, and Thief was fantastic as well. And talk about another stellar cast. I mean, Cameron Mitchell, Richard Crenna, Angie Dickinson. I mean, you don't see that caliber of acting in the movies, much less a TV movie. No, you don't. And don't forget uh, the star of uh, the picture of Dorian Gray, who played the... I, didn't he play the uh, the agent that uh, the uh, the thief dealt with or his, his fence? Oh, it was it was a it was a terrific cast. That was really satisfying. Oh, John got an uh, uh, John got an Edgar Award for that one. Yeah, I was really surprised at just how good that movie was. I mean, I knew it would be, but I didn't expect it to. Just you know, I would, now I'm going out and recommending that people go check that out. Things came out a little more solid during that time. I think people were aiming to really do a kind of piece of theater. Uh, and maybe it maybe it was a little more a little more theatrical and a little less wham bam, and uh, the 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 death of uh, the Richard Crenna character uh, had a, a a wonderful fickle finger of fate feeling to it. Tell me about Trouble Man and how that one came about because I actually prefer Trouble Man to Shaft hands down. Not not to put Shaft Bless down or anything, but. Trouble Man just is, it's a solid motion picture. Uh, yeah, and, and again, it's not predictable. The, the characters aren't uh, same old, same old in any way. Uh, how it came about was John, uh, Shaft had uh, come out and been a big hit, and the line producer was Joel Freeman, who, who was a long, long-time friend from the very first that John broke in. And John called up Joel after Shaft was all over the news and people's interest. And he said, look, Joel, you've never really been the boss of a movie. And I've never known what it is to have the necessary control. Why don't we get a company together and make a movie? And Joel, after a little bit of thinking about it, said, okay. Uh, And naturally, their strength at that time would have been based on Shaft. And John started out in what was in his head was the image of a pool table. They went first to MGM because that was where Shaft had been a big hit. And, oh, Lord, what was the name of the... Aubrey. Yeah, right. Aubrey was the head of the studio. 
And uh, they had a very solid treatment in hand. And Aubrey told them that he liked it and he didn't want them to have anything to do with it, but he'd give John $10,000 to just leave the treatment in his hands and go away. And Joel told Aubrey that was an insulting offer, and Aubrey's answer was, it's an insulting business. <laughs> so they went next to 20th Century Fox uh, with the help of an agent. And at 20th Century Fox, there was solid interest and a solid deal that if they, they could make a package, in effect, find the right director, find the right lead, then they would make the movie there. They checked in at 20th Century Fox and spent several several weeks, maybe even months, interviewing actors and talking to directors. Oh, and one interesting thing. There were guys that came in for that character who were not really actors, but had a kind of, hey, maybe I'd like to try it once. So John got a chance to meet Bill Russell, the football player. That's, oh, I'm sorry. I'm not a sports person. Basketball player. <laughs> and and uh, they, they had many, many coming in, practically every black actor in the town. Eventually, the studio, having said no to a whole pile of people, uh, chose the lead actor and the director themselves. It wasn't what John or Joel would have preferred. They'd like to have had somebody that they felt really connected with, but okay, go ahead and make the movie and do a good job. They went ahead and uh, nobody would believe the budget these days. It seemed like it was it was the price of a pair of shoes, but they did this movie. But I have to say, Joel, Joel, Joel's great gift was he really knew how to work the budget. That was the main thing he brought to it, wonderfully. And he didn't he didn't work it on t- Trouble Man. Uh, it was finished, but there was a, there was a, it was a hectic kind of a time, very hectic. It was early in the time of decency toward black people, and the, the, there was a lot of defensiveness in in actors and. Uh, uh, grading conversations, and uh, it's, it still got made in, on budget, in spite of the fact that people got pretty nettled with each other a lot. What was his relationship with Ivan Dixon? Because I love his work. He only directed a handful of feature films, but all of them are fantastic. I think it was. I think I think Ivan only directed two. I'm not sure, but that's all. Uh, the Spook That Sat by the Door was his other movie. And he did, I think, he did Trouble Man to get the money in in his pocket to make the spook that sat by the door. Ivan wasn't an easy person to get along with. Uh, he In later years, he really became a very nice guy. But at that time, he didn't want anybody to have an opinion. He wanted it just to be his picture, doing, doing it his way. And, uh, well, I guess... That's pretty much the way everybody in the business is. Give me creative control. And it's hard to negotiate with that. But the important thing is, it did get made. Everybody came out of it reasonably comfortable. And like I said, but it, it, there, there was, as I, I'd, I'd be dishonest if I didn't tell you, it was a movie where there was friction. How much did the script change between what John wrote and what we end up seeing on the screen? Very little. Very, very little. 
I don't think I remember any major changes. I was always curious because there's an there's a really good relationship that our main character has with uh, the woman Cleo, Paula Kelly. Yeah. But then there's a that weird moment at the end when he goes off with the the one police officer, the the woman police officer, and it's just like, wait, wait, no, you've got Cleo at home. So I wondered if they made him more of a Lothario as they went along. They didn't. I've got to be honest. John did that. He was looking for the sense that Shaft projected. Uh, the stud who has one one main squeeze, but uh, makes a lot of women happy. He worked on a couple pilots that I don't ever think. Well, I know one of them got picked up, but they ended up redoing it, which was Wonder Woman. The other one, though, which I've just seen like a small clip for, I can't seem to find a full episode, was one called The Fuzz Brothers. That looks amazing. Oh, yeah, that was a wonderful cast. I remember I'm trying I'm trying to remember who the name of the mover and shaker was. I won't remember it, uh, who uh, called after it was on the air. I think he called Joel Freeman and said that if, if it had been his studio, it would have gone as a, as a series. Uh, it, was, it, was, it, was a, uh, it was a fun show, and uh, the director actually did a good job with it. And, of course, the uh, two lead actors, uh, both great. It had a lighter touch than a lot of the uh, other things that John wrote with black actors. I guess, stepping back to Trouble Man, I'm curious, was that the success that John had hoped it to be? No, absolutely not. Uh, the friction that I told you about spilled over into the promotion. Yeah, Robert Hooks uh, didn't like promoting the movie, and he really, he really didn't try. Uh, Ivan Dixon wrapped it at the time, and it was kind of embarrassing altogether. Some people liked it very much, and the studio really didn't uh, get well behind it. Uh, you know how sometimes they'll they'll just not feel like working with a particular movie because they like another kind of movie that's coming out at the same time, so they throw everything behind that. And a few weeks after it was released, it suddenly occurred to me, and I said to John, a Trouble Man wasn't released, it was let out. Uh, just, that's the way they did it. Uh, it. It had played very few theaters, played a very short time, uh, and it was kind of sad, especially since John had a percentage of it. And with the, the studio's magic accounting system, that's one that we'll never see a buck off of. Oh, I should tell you, the, the studio actually, I think it was 2005, somebody, some, uh, some producer there apparently saw the movie and saw in it what you see in it, and uh, he, wanted, he wanted to remake it. Uh, and they, they did uh, pay John and Joel whatever was necessary to work it out, that they would agree that they, uh, they with their ownership, that they were willing for the studio to make a new one and they would get whatever number of bucks, if it went to the, so forth, you know, like that. One of those complicated con contracts. Uh, but nothing happened with it. But they did want to do it again. Yeah, for a long time, it was really hard to find that on VHS or on DVD or anything. I could find the soundtrack, no problem, but finding the movie itself yeah. was really difficult. Oh, and that, that was one of the interesting things about the uh, movie. Did you know that Marvin Gaye was what you call a hummer. He didn't really, he didn't, he didn't write the, the scores. He would get these great themes 
and he'd hum them to people who could transpose, transcribe them. Yeah, he came up with such great sounds, my lord. And 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 he obviously the scores reflected what it was that he put there. It wasn't it wasn't something of somebody else saving him. They they got what he put forth. I uh I, I don't have too many more questions about Trouble Man, so I I, I wanted to ask uh, another Star Trek question, which was as far as John's involvement with the next generation and and uh how I mean it it almost feels like one of those fool me twice, shame on me kind of things. Or was it a little bit better the second time around? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, what happened was that well, when John was first called to go over to the studio to talk about a possible this episode, uh, Gene Roddenberry, I, I don't know whether he came into an office or whether John was ushered into his office, but anyway, Gene came to him there and said, we're doing, oh, oh my God, my mind just went blank. We're redoing John's major script for trouble, Naked Time. We're redoing Naked Time, and I'm having somebody else write it, and you can't do anything about it, so just accept it. Yeah, <laughs> that's not the kind of thing that endears you uh, to somebody, yes. Uh, and then with the uh, the script that John did write, I think that was called Justice, that became very unpleasant. Uh, just about after he had turned in the script, I think everybody and their Uncle Frim's mooter did a version of it. Uh, Dorothy wrote on it, and somebody else wrote on it, and somebody else wrote on it. I don't know if we ever saw it, but uh, I don't think it bore much resemblance to the one that John turned in. Yeah, I just recently rewatched that one, and I'm curious what his version would have been like. Uh, I couldn't tell you because the experience was so painful. Uh, it really it, painful and humiliating uh, that it's it's one of those things that I'm sure it's in storage somewhere, but we we you know have a, have a drink, don't think about it. Did I read right that he wrote a version of Star Trek the the motion picture at one point? Yeah, what John likes to say about that is that uh, he did rewrite it. He did write it. He came up with his treatment for it. And it involves the destruction of the entire universe as a possibility, and it just wasn't big enough for them. (laughs) What he he did was he took that concept of the black hole in space, and he found a way to defeat the black hole in space. And believe me, it wasn't easy. But he did do it, and I I liked it. I thought it was a really good piece, and, and I don't always... Well, I always say, gee, John, that's great. But there have been a couple that I really didn't think were the, up to his standard over the years. But uh, that, that, was, that was a good one. But they didn't want it. This is a very unfair question, but what are some of your favorites of John's work? Uh, Naked Time, of course. Uh, that, was, that was an elegant piece. Uh, the Mr. Novak that he won for, won the Writers Guild Award well, for, uh, that, that, had, that was very... I, one of the untouchables, I can't tell what it, which one it is, but I treasure a line from it that still gives me the shivers when uh, a young man, like in his teens, has gotten, has been killed by a member of the mob, and his his father walks sadly into his room and looks around and then sees the clock on his son's dresser 
and he smashes the clock and he calls out, time, time for who? And uh, like I said, it still gives me the shivers, <laughs> whichever one it was. Uh, his Laredo's, uh, that was that was just a romp. I, I can't, pra- practically all of them were such fun and so delightful. Uh, and, and he uh, he had this great relationship with Neville Brand. I don't mean they were buddies, it was just uh, <laughs> Neville Brand was terrific to write for and and somebody described him as he's not being that terrific uh you shave a bear and you get neville brand but uh but but his, he he was very much alive all the time and a, and been a scandalous scandalous person but uh, the definite definitely the uh laredos and I'm checking to see what I'm going to church. I'll probably think of one afterwards. I, I think uh, Do Not Fall, Spindle, or Mutilate was in there. John wrote so many. I, it, it's uh, his, his, just his, his pieces that were actually produced. Every, every, everybody who's a good writer in town has uh, an awful lot of things that are good, but just for one reason or another, weren't produced. But the, those of his that were were produced, they come, they add up to just short of a hundred. He has ninety nine uh, that were produced, and it's very difficult to go through them. But I, I'll tell you, John D. F. Black story. We met at uh, City College. Uh, he was he was uh, primarily studying directing, and I was primarily studying acting. And he told me he was a writer. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. I do some writing myself and that, 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 like that. And he gave me the two pieces he had written. And one of them was about cooks in the army and how they beat a terrible situation from the enemy and so forth. And the other was a short story about two homeless men. And I first read the cooks thing and I thought, oh, my God, I think I'll have to leave City College. Uh, I don't ever want to talk to him again on any subject. And then I read the other one, and it was so splendid, just such terrific writing. And I knew he had it. Um, but but as I said, if 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 all I'd seen was the thing about the army coach, I wouldn't be on the phone today. Let me put it that way. I want to ask about uh, the end of, well, I hate to say the end of his career, but the end of stuff that he's credited for, because it seems to end right around 87, which was that last episode of Star Trek. Did that kind of sour him on the business? Uh, no, uh, I've got to be honest, ageism. And with John, uh, anybody could look at his credits and realize that he had been around for a long time he could not he couldn't fib and say that he was starting out or was close to starting out and therefore hadn't even even though he still looked like a youngish man uh but they just didn't want anybody they they i i know that the agents told him and friends told him that they look at the credits and of course it's easy to bring them up now with the internet they look at the credits and they realize you. He, he broke in in '57, I think '56, and they just it just didn't work anymore. The the quality of the material didn't matter, and that that's that's always been a crazy making thing because you, you said about what is it that was especially good, 
And I got to tell you, some of the best things John wrote uh, have never been produced. I don't mean a lot of them, but, you know, like two or three that when I think about them, it breaks my heart that an audience never got to see them. But people, so many people don't know how to look at material. They, they know how to think about whether or not it's like what was already done or something. A writer doesn't just stop writing, I imagine. He, I mean, oh no, his, no, no, he hasn't stopped writing. Is he still just pounding away at the keyboard every day? Uh, not so much, uh, because you lose heart. But uh, he, 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 what he does is he comes up with a, some concepts that he likes, and he will grab up a yellow pad and write a treatment or uh, sketch characters. Uh, but the awareness that. No matter how good it is, you've got to believe that there's a chance, a good chance that an audience will see it. And that, that's disheartening. It, it's very difficult to finish something if you don't have that expectation. Well, Mary, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you jumping on the phone. And I understand with uh, John having an addict, it can't be easy. Well, I, I, I'm very grateful that you didn't mind uh, because it's... Uh, I, I usually I call myself the cue cards usually, but anyway, I, I it was you've been a very very gracious interviewer, which I can't always say, and I thank you, and I know that, and let me give the phone to John, and he'll come out of his headache long enough. To... Hello, how are you? Thanks. I'm well. Thank you very much, and thank you, thanks to Mary uh, and to you for your time. This has been fantastic. Well, I'm glad, and I hope you have enough material for your program and all of that. I do. Thank you again. This has been terrific. Okay. okay. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and I don't know what to say, so I'll say goodbye. All right, we are back, and we we're talking about Trouble Man. And I just, I don't really have a lot of notes for the second half of the show, other than Harry Medved is a fucking asshole. Amen. Amen. You know what? The Medveds in general are a pox. They have always been a pox on film criticism and just complete, I mean, to the point where it's almost like, who? How did they, how did either one become a thing? Because their taste is shit. Their opinions are shit. Their attitude is bad. They, I don't even think they love, they're like that school of critics that don't love. All they, all they do is just nag and complain and tear things down. And it's like, you know, nobody's forcing you to have this like, you know, like position or this job, you know, it's, this movie's fantastic. You know, I would, ugh. They they should have to watch something really bad, like the entire Michael Bay filmography or Showgirls 2. <laughs> the reason why I'm calling out Harry Medved as being a fucking asshole is that this movie made his 50 worst films of all time book back in 1984. And I've, I've picked up a couple of uh, – he was one of two Medveds, Harry and Michael. And I think Michael Medved, I think he was on like Siskel and Ebert for, at the movies for a little while um, as well. And it, yeah, the, I mean these guys, their whole career is like the golden turkeys, like this kind of shit. And it's just like – I mean they, they – 
they really built the internet, right? I mean, these guys should be on Twitter now, right? Just, ha- you know, harping on anything and everything. Cause that's all they do. They're like the everything wrong with guys. They, they, they just call out shit and they don't understand it. And yeah, if you're going to say Trouble Man is one of the worst, 50 worst films of all the movies made, this was one of the worst films of the, of the top 50 worst. I mean, have you seen the guy from Harlem? I mean, if you're going to pick a one black exploitation film, there are a lot of others that you can choose. I mean, to me, this is one of the greatest 70s black action films. I mean, I wouldn't even say black action films. This is one of the greatest films in the 1970s for me. I really enjoy this movie that much. If I've had a closed head injury or what, but I can see why this is a great film, and I don't understand why somebody could put this in the top 50 worst films of all times. Well, it's because people that focus on that and are from that school, they're, they're willfully ignorant. You know, they don't, they don't have enough of a palate or a mind or a heart to appreciate really good cinema, in my opinion. Like, I, I, I don't get it. I don't get the internet version of it either. It's like, if, if I don't like something, I'm not going to pay attention to it. You know, if I truly just am like, oh, this movie or the song or whatever is shit, I I don't want to write about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'd rather use that time to kind of champion things and artists I love and who I find interesting. You know, I mean, if I'm if I'm reviewing something, I'm objective, of course, but it's just it's bullshit. I don't get that attitude. It's just it's a bad attitude. And you know, they're not they're not even clever about it. Like, you know, you can at least be if you're going to be snarky, be funny. But, but they're not even that. I'd love to find out what they actually thought the shortcomings were of the film. Because, I mean, even if you sort of say that action films aren't your thing, I don't know, as I said earlier on, the, really the action is more like a side thought to this film. I, mean, I disagree with that whole notion, but even if action films aren't your thing, this is really more about the conversation and about the suspense and uh, the games of chess, if you will, that are being played in here. And I, I just, I'd love to know what it was that uh, the Medveds actually objected to and or whether they're just, you know, shit stirrers who are you know, playing an experiment on the, people who who read the book or whether they thought this was uh, an easy target i yeah look i'm I'm with you heather i don't understand the mentality that makes people makes critics want to write about things that they don't like you know i'd much rather be spending my time talking about things that i love and why i love them but yeah this makes no sense to me we had a, a film critic writing for one of our newspapers, I think in the 80s and the 90s. I don't want to say his name in case you know, one of the Australian listeners uh, is, is friends with him, but um, uh, his initials are JS. And it seemed like the, the thinking was that if he wrote about a film, nine times out of ten, if he said it was shit, it was a good film. And nine times out of ten, if he said it was a good film, then it was definitely one to avoid and i just he he was really really very nasty to my way of thinking and he always really hung it on the australian film industry i mean i I can't say for sure whether he had whether he was responsible for any of the downfall of people not seeing australian cinema as much as they had previously but every chance he got he would hang it on australian films which really made my blood boil so um yeah, I just don't get people like that. 
No, that guy sounds like a wanker. <laughs> he yeah, of of the highest order, and yeah, but I'll, I'll be interested to see. I, I imagine that uh, our very good friend Ben Buckingham will be sending me a PM after this and saying, "You're talking about so and so, aren't you?" Yep. I mean, Vincent Camby didn't like this movie when he reviewed it back in November of '72, but. His criticism was actually valid criticism. He kind of hit on some of the same things that we brought up during our discussion, this whole idea of Cleo kind of putting tea before her and the way that she's portrayed as like sitting at home waiting for him to call, those kind of things, and this idea of um, – like this was one of the earlier exploitation entries, so this whole idea of – you know. T is more focused on money than he is on helping the community, which I don't necessarily think that's true because he is helping the community. But there's this whole thing of like, uh, let me see. Um, there have been other white finance films, including Shaft, that have done more or less the same thing in a similar fashion. Uh, and what he's talking about is um, – uh, this whole idea of the guy being a super cat, being boozing, turning on black women and white women, and murdering anybody who gets in his way with an abandon that surpasses the demands of even this foolish plot. So it's like, yeah, he's, I mean, he's taking it as a junk film and skewering it because of that. But I think there's so much more to it than it just being a junk film. Like, I think looking at it, with through the eyes of this is a detective movie. How does it follow the detective plots? How does it go against those? How does it play with it? And also, you know, looking at it versus something like a shaft or superfly or some of these other films. I don't know. I, I just see it having a little bit more value than some of the critics, even of the day uh, had when it came out. And to me, it's one of the most, rewatchable films. And that's the thing that I really appreciate about Ivan Dixon's movies is that he made really watchable films. And I think they tended to have subversive messages in them rather than just going with the flow. I mean, you look at his next movie, the spook who sat by the door, that movie was so subversive that they ended up having to take it out of movie theaters. I mean, cause that is basically like, Hey, let's have a revolution. Okay, yeah, that sounds really fucking good to me. Mike, you a fan of uh, Uptight? Have you seen that? The Jules Dessin film, which I think came out about 1968? I have. That was another one that was tough to find for a long time, but now I think it's like streaming on Amazon Prime. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I watched it like a few weeks ago with Ben. He uh, acquired a copy of the uh, the Blu-ray, and I certainly think that that and Spooky Set by the Door would make a great double feature, both sort of um, and once again I, I mentioned before about the whole issue of nothing but a man where Ivan Dixon's character is just looking quietly for some respect and uptight and spooky sat by the door are positive are really about righteous anger but I, I guess well to maybe make a bit of a Star Trek compa- world comparison the whole feeling in uptight and maybe to an extent in uh the spook is out by the door it's the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one uh, and you, you get your characters in both those films who um you want to sort of see them done right they're imperfect characters but uh, like in in uptight where there's um the 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 group who want to start the race war and there's uh, the the one character, I can't remember his name, but I think he was one of the writers of the film, who, uh, oh, Tank, the, the name of the character was Tank. And he 
um, uh, he's a bit of a pitiful character and he's we know that he really needs someone to take him in hand and who needs to who needs to uh, look after him a bit, but they're saying that no, you're untrustworthy. You've done wrong by us and your drunkenness has gotten us into a lot of trouble and you're self-serving us. And I just, yeah, I, I that those films are really more about the needs of the community have to weigh the needs of the individual. It just sort of was interesting. There was, there was a common theme between both of those films. I know you ended up watching a lot of black movies for this discussion, and I'm curious how you feel that this one fits in there, or how does this rank for you? Did you see stuff that you liked more than this as you were doing your research, or or does this rise above other ones particularly? This set of films was not the first set of black exploitation. Sorry to invoke that word again, but you know, as you said, to as a easy catch-all phrase for you know. Um, the action movies and all that, but I had seen a number in my lifetime before, but it certainly wasn't something that I'd watched a lot of. I mean, I think maybe as a 10 year old, I think one of the earliest films that I'd seen in the cinema was let's do it again. The sequel to uptown Saturday night got to see that in the movie theater. Um, But probably I'd say that this film is really would be like in my top uh, echelon or if you're going to say that, genre of film but uh, i mean i don't know whether this qualifies as a black exploitation film but uh, i'd say across 110th street would be absolutely prime the pinnacle of um of the films under that banner but this had come really really close but i guess like you mike i just want to sort of like look at this it's just, it's just a great crime film um but and, and certainly if you're going to sort of like consider the wider genre of crime films i'd even put it up there again you know as one of the truly great crime films of the 70s no matter what you want to call it so yeah absolutely loved it and yeah it is it is up there and certainly out of the group of films that i watched specifically for the podcast yeah it is definitely uh, the best but i'd say i've long been a fan of of uh, across 110th street and that probably pips this one but only just heather when i think of you i don't tend to think of black exploitation films because you but then you go into so many different genres that, you know, I think more like crime or European or porn or sleaze, um, but you have so many different interests. And I'm curious, have you seen a whole lot of black exploitation films? I've seen some, but uh, I don't think I'm as well versed as you and Morris, <laughs> to be to be honest. And that's something I want to fix. Um, and I think for me, just like with my approach, and that I'm, I appreciate you like saying that so much because I just always I try to look. I mean, there's genres I'm good at or subgenres I'm good at, but I I always just kind of go for what's interesting, and that can range. Like I'm not because actually when you talked about Camby's review of it, I kind of wonder if part of the problem with reviewers like that approaching a film like this is that they automatically are in their own heads putting it in a box, like oh this is a black exploitation film, but it's not, as you guys have very aptly pointed it out. Um, and I think that's a problem sometimes when you approach any film is like, if you're going into it with a box already in your head, you're not really going to be able to, in my opinion, to properly evaluate it and, and really soak it in for the whole experience that it is. I mean, to me, like trouble, man, the beauty of a film like this is it's, it's, it's trouble, man. Like why, why put it in a box? Like it's not black exploitation. It is kind of noir. It is an action. Um, and it's just a great film. I mean, ultimately that's the category that I think matters the most. Is it good? <laughs> is it a good movie? And, you know, 
and yeah, but I do, I do need to be uh, more versed. I've, I've seen like the bigger ones. I'm a little rusty at this point, like, cause I've seen Shaft, I've seen Superfly. Uh, you and I talked about Sugar Hill on a previous episode of the Projection Booth, and uh, I love that film. Come on, it's got Voodoo and Robert Corey, so you know. <laughs> so of course I loved it. <laughs> But, uh, but no, that's why I love working with guys like, uh, like you too, though, is that, you know, it reminds me the areas of film I need to strengthen, you know, my knowledge on. And, uh, cause I loved what I've experienced, but I, you know, I, I need to experience more. Well, this year I'm looking into a lot of other stuff that I've never experienced before. I've got, you know, Cat coming on here a couple of times talking about Daughters of Darkness and American Tiger. I've got no experience with those movies whatsoever. So I'm really looking forward to that. And that's kind of the thing is just like, yeah, show me stuff that I haven't necessarily seen. There are movies like this where I want more people to experience them because I've enjoyed it and I want other people to enjoy it. But at the same time, I think that this whole thing is kind of a give and take as far as what are the movies that interest you? You know, let's let's hear about those and let's talk about those as well. I know you and I have talked about other things where it's just like, you know, hey, Mike, check this movie out. And it's just like, well, thank you. And that's what this whole thing is is about to me is like the give and take of let's see things that other people enjoy and see why we enjoy those things. Absolutely. I have been putting off uh, programming next month's culture cast for Chris Dashew, and I should talk to you, Morris, after we're done with this and have you pick out four Aussie films for me to check out and put uh, put him to the test with and me to the test, because other than a few things like the the one howling movie and of course mad max maybe some stork maybe some alvin purple i haven't seen that many aussie films oh i'm so got a smile on my face now you cannot imagine i'm this is the best thing ever yep okay done we're talking coming soon to the culture cast for osploitation films chosen by morris yes oh this is gonna be so good all right we're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show hi this is curtis mayfield Sit down and take a listen. This may be something that you're missing. I know your mind you want it funky, but you don't have to be no junkie. Get yourself together. Remember, Freddy's dead. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Gordon Parks Jr.'s. Boy, that's kind of a mouthful there. Superfly. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Morris and Heather. Morris, what is the latest with you, sir? So this month, looking forward to, I think it's going to be actually the final interview that we'll be doing on this current run on See Here. Uh, we're going to be talking with a fellow called Paul Elliott, who's a director of a new documentary uh, called The Library Music Film. Now, up until this film came out, I'd heard about the expression library music, but I didn't really know what it actually referred to. And uh, I've, watched, I've watched this film, and my goodness, it's just its a world unto itself. It's a whole alternative history of soundtrack music, of pop music, and the people who love library music are absolutely obsessive about it so uh, just th if you can think of any number of tv shows or sports shows uh with ubiquitous themes chances are that they've been recorded for uh kpm music or bruton music and they were just picked out of you know a, a library that weren't written specifically for that show and 
um, I just found it absolutely fascinating. And also a bunch of musicians who I'd known from just the regular rock music world had also gone and recorded library music. So bottom line, it's basically, it's soundtrack music for films that haven't been made yet. So it was an absolutely fascinating film. Really looking forward to talking to the director for, uh, for this month's See Here. Yeah, I think the closest I've ever come to thinking about library music was actually, uh, Heather, when you and I did uh, the opening of Misty Beethoven. And to hear those tracks in that also being used in other things. I can't remember if it was, was it that one or was it an, another film? It was Wanda Whip's Wall Street, where they had the, uh, the theme from the People's Court being used in Wanda Whip's Wall Street. Oh, yes. Uh, Malibu High also has that same piece of music. <laughs> Which is, it's hilarious. Now, I immediately thought of Matt Skirt, too, though, because Radley really, he used a lot of library music in his films. And, um, and to great effect, though, he really, I mean, some of those, some of those scores or pieces of music are, you know, just very evocative. But that one obviously stands out because we're pop culture Americans. They do actually briefly touch on a piece of music that, appeared i think the the fellow says in deep throat but elsewhere i'd read that it was used in the opening of misty beethoven but they they do uh, briefly touch on the use of library music in 70s porn films but i think that that could go for a documentary unto itself i'd love to see someone talk about that a whole lot more but um yeah anyway so yeah a really fascinating thing and I, i don't know for how many americans are familiar with this but there was a show that uh, came out of England in the 70s. Uh, this comedian, uh, Dave Allen, uh, the show was called Dave Allen at Large. And basically the concept behind this show was, you know, just this this guy, he'd sit around, smoke cigarettes, drink whiskey and tell jokes. Uh, not a show that would garner much traction in 2019. But the opening theme for that show oh, was uh, a tune called Studio 69. And I only became aware of that through this movie. And it's just an, such an iconic piece of music. Anyone who grew up at the time I was growing up and watched this show, it, the tune has never left their head. Such a great piece of music. and um, But I never knew. It was library music. So uh, I'm beyond this film and talking about it on C here, I'm probably sort of going to go down a big library music rabbit hole. I got the soundtrack for the film and got another CD, which you know, sort of collected a whole bunch of KPM and Bruton music together and from some other big uh, library music labels. But I, I think I'm going to go down a rabbit hole this year and uh, search out some more stuff. It's really, really good. And a lot of it very, very funky. And I, I imagine that a lot of that music from the time would have taken some cues from the Blaxploitation soundtracks as well because a lot of it really very very funky really cool stuff i mean there's some bland stuff as well it's not all you know it's not all gravy in 099 as maxwell smart would have said but there's some really really cool funky music in the, uh, on on these labels so yeah well worth a, 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 a well worth the research well cool i look forward to listening to that episode and heather what's keeping you busy well, um, I recently published an article uh, on James Glickenhouse's 1982 film, The Soldier, uh, which you can read over at diabolicmagazine.com. Um, you can also read a piece I did that's been a long time in the making called Teenage Blues Triptych. 
and uh, and I basically cover Blue Summer, the Chuck Vincent film, uh, the Pom Pom Girls, and Last American Virgin. And this was published recently in the debut issue of Soledad, which is a magazine published by Jeremy Ritchie, who also did Art Decades. You can get that on Amazon. Um, and last but most definitely not least, I have launched The Rocket Files, which is my brand new column uh, that's going to be devoted to all things Charles Rocket. And you can read that and much more over at my website, mondoheather.com. You're doing the Lord's work with that Charles Rocket column, I have to tell you. Oh, thank you. I love Charles Rocket so much, and I have for a very long time. So this is, I always wanted to do something for him, and it just felt like just doing a piece wouldn't be enough. Like, I really, like, he is so underrated and just deserves much, much more. Uh, and I'm going to do my own little humble part <laughs> to hopefully fix fix some wrongs out there. So That's fantastic. Sorry yeah. to put you on the spot, Heather, but when's your book coming up? Of course, uh, me, myself and the great John Skip have written the Bizarro Encyclopedia of Film Volume 1. It has been a – it's an absolute, of course, labor of love because that's the only way we can work. <laughs> and uh, – we had to, we, we've had like a few delays, uh, cause we wanted to get a lot of it was just layout and getting photos and just getting all of the visual end of it perfect to our liking. Um, and, uh, it, we're shooting for, uh, the spring. Uh, we don't have a, we don't have a firm date yet, but the general release should be in the spring. Of course, you know, um, the more, the more I know, the more I will put it out there on all of my various social media, like, so uh, I can't talk. I got so excited, like <laughs> social media platforms. Well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. And I think I'll be running late on this episode. I just have a hunch. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Checking trouble,
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.